Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Y'all a brew heads? Yeah, we brew heads. So pour a glass of craft beer. We can do this. Yeah. What's good, y'all? This is C Certified Brewhead, and welcome to episode 77 of Beer Nuts the Podcast Adjunct Series. We are back in the building. Guys, we have a great one tonight. This is something uh, we've never really touched on before. This actual business model of the company we're talking to tonight is something that uh, I think is fascinating. As you guys know, we, my partner Tiffany and I, our, co- our producer of the podcast, and I was going to say co-founder, I guess you're kind of co-founder. We'll call you co-founder. And, uh, you know, we're big into entrepreneurial stuff. So when I heard about this company, I was like, yes, this is a fantastic fit. We're just going to get right into it. Please welcome Aaron Gore all the way from South Carolina. We've never had anyone from South Carolina in Community Brewing Ventures. Aaron, there we go. Welcome, sir. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Not going to lie, see, you're not missing anything from not having a whole lot of people from South Carolina. And I say that with due respect to all of my neighbors. We're terrible. (laughs) Horrible. Horrendous. I heard it's a beautiful place. Which city? Yeah, it's a place. Yeah, it's a place. Which city? Where are you specifically? So I'm actually right across the border from Charlotte, North Carolina. So for all intents and purposes, that's really the area that I'm in. Right at the very, very tippy top of South Carolina. Gotcha. Okay. I've been to the Charlotte airports as far as I've gone. I was in Virginia a couple years ago and I kept seeing the signs to North Carolina and I was like, oh, sick. Like it's like right there. I didn't like that whole region is a. Pretty dense, eh? Like as far as it's not that far to drive up between the the maybe th- you know South Carolina through up to say Virginia or even DC. Well, by Canadian terms, yeah, <clears throat> no, it, it is it is pretty <laughs> close together. There there's, there might be a little difference of scale there. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a very good point. But it's something I guess you're right. I'm not used to it. So whenever we are in the states and this is like, what do you mean? It's th- like three hours to the next mega city. Like it just doesn't happen. Even here, it's five and a half to Toronto from Montreal to Toronto. And that's probably one of the closest, except for maybe Alberta, Calgary, and Edmonton, but they're like same province, three hours or something. But you guys have just got that over the whole country. Oh, it's amazing. They're everywhere. It's one of the things I love about living in the area is, you know, you, you give three hours in the car and it feels like you've not only traveled somewhere, but you're really getting a whole new experience, whole new place, mm. whole new set of things to do. And it, it makes it, you know, long weekends are real easy to take advantage of. Hell Yeah. That's a great way to put it. I love it. I love it. So, bro, we got a really interesting one tonight. I'm really glad we connected. Um, I want to, you know, I'm very interested to learn in more detail about what you guys do just because it's, it's, it sounds like it's sort of essentially one of a kind, if I'm not mistaken. I've just never heard of it before. <clears throat> yeah, being no, we are the only people in the world <clears throat> doing what it is that we do. Uh, there, there's been a couple others that have tried, not successfully. We're the first ones to really actually get it out to market. And, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we're going to be the only ones doing it and then i'm just glad that somebody's able to take up this space and be able to help breweries out i love it man i love it we're being extraordinarily vague but trust me guys we will get there we will get there but first and foremost we cannot possibly have a conversation without a beer so oh hell no we are going to kick off with steam theories vamanos Romanos, mexican style lager um tell us about this one bro yeah, so it actually might be a little easier once we get into the business model, but this is from the uh, wonderful folks out of Dallas, Texas. Chuck Homla, uh, Kirk Roberts, a whole lot of fantastic people out there. Uh, 
this is just Mexican style lagers. Nothing really fancy to it. Uh, okay. It's basically a pilsner. If you've had one of those, you can understand the basic principle. The difference with this is we also use flake corn. Okay. It really helps add just a touch of sweetness to it. Also, really helps dry the finish. So, if you're looking for something to drink in warm weather, which you know here in the states we actually get quite a bit of, especially in <laughs> South Carolina, please rub it in. You need, yeah, yeah, you need something to be able to get you through the summertime and. Even right now, it got up to about 86 where I'm at today. So, you know, <clears throat> something like this is still pretty desirable. That is, uh, yeah, I don't even want to hear about it, sir. Now, it's actually not that bad here, but we're about to get into the uh, the shit show. So, yes, you guys, I wish we had a South Carolina or a Florida here. We just, we, we get screwed. But either way, I feel like Mexican lagers are uh, always welcome. And you got to start off with a crispy, so, man, cheers. Hey, Oof. cheers on that, sir. No worries. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the nice. idea that just because you're drinking something crispy, just because you're drinking something light, doesn't necessarily mean you have to compromise on quality or flavor. 100%. And so many people, you know, when they're at the barbecue, what they're looking to do is, you know, drink, you know, drink Miller, drink Coors, drink Paps. And like, okay, mm-hmm. listen, we've all been there. We've all done that. But, you know, there's a lot of fantastic stuff out there that isn't going to break your bank and you're still going to be able to show up at the barbecue with and, and enjoy and, you know, if you want to sip something floating poolside or sit, sitting in your giant unicorn floaty, yeah, this is the perfect beer for it. 100%. I couldn't imagine anything else, particularly this style. I feel like Mexican lagers have uh, made a bit of a comeback of, of the last year or so. I don't know. Have you noticed that at all? You know, we, we've actually seen quite a bit of it. Um, you know, the places, ironically, you don't see them really at our places near Mexico, but pretty much everywhere else, they get the basic premise. Uh, and honestly, too, the most beautiful thing about Mexican style lagers that aren't, you know, the big brands is, you know, what this doesn't come in is a, a clear bottle. Mm-hmm. You're not going to skunk something in a can. Yes, so, sir. you know, all, all those bad experiences people have with, let's say, Corona, where they're like, oh, man, it just smells like a skunk's ass. That's part of its house character. No, yeah. it's not supposed to taste like that. They put it in a damn clear bottle. We put stuff <laughs> in cans. We brew stuff fresh. We get it out to you quick, and we want to make sure that when you're drinking it, you're it's tasting the way that the brewer intended. Hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. I mean, like the I mean, the current thing is it's nice little uh, gimmick, but you know, I think this is it's great. I'm really enjoying and appreciating the the volume of craft lagers, Mexican style lagers. I'm sorry, so that people can understand that you know, Corona cool, it's a thing and it's been a thing, but like you know, this is supporting small businesses and they do it better let's be honest like corona tastes like water that's cool oh yeah that's cool if you want water but let's listen i mean corona might be a thing corona is a thing to your point but you know like smallpox was a thing we wiped it out because it kind of sucked <laughs> <laughs> i'm totally fine with finding better better alternatives to something just because it's been around for a while and i'm not gonna shit all over all mexican lagers like modelo is fi- I, i'll drink modelo not mad at modelo even right. dosaki saw I'll, I'll screw with but let's be real no one's drinking corona for the flavor no, sir. That is not happening, particularly in, in, in our industry. Now, this is really great, man. It's got a nice uh, sweetness to it. It's got a great body. Uh, so it's 5.3%, which is arguably – as you can probably tell me, is that high for a Mexican lager or am I reaching that? That is on the higher end. It's not high for the style, but it's definitely somewhere in that four and a half to five and a half range is really right. where you'd be looking to see them. Um, you start getting below four and a half, and now you're starting to look more at like you know light loggers, like, like right. real. Some of the craft loggers will get down to that craft American style loggers. Okay, no, that's a good point. So I'm definitely getting um, like there's a nice floralness to it, mild bitterness kind of in the background. 
way more flavor than people would anticipate, particularly if we're you know, talking about that Corona style. Like, there's a ton of flavor in this thing. Um, really smooth, nice and crisp. Fantastic. Exactly what you want. It's never a bad time to use Noble Hops. We use Hallertau on here. I mean, it, it's exactly what you'd be Hallertau. expecting out of a quality Pilsner, but that corn just gives it just a little more roundness on there. And it still finishes very, very crisp, very, very dry. Makes it very, very food-friendly, too. I mean, mm, any, anybody uh, who's tried to cut corn out of their diet for whatever reason will be able to tell you it's in literally freaking everything. So there's a whole lot you can pair with this. That's a great point. Yeah, particularly over there, man. I what was it? There was some docos that were explaining it. I forgot what they were, but they were the ones where they were saying most of the monocross was like corn, soy, and something else. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, so I'm originally from southern Indiana. It's all corn and soy out there. Wow. Uh, yeah, crazy. people don't realize that most of the soy that goes over to like Asia to make like soy sauce and like out of comes from the U.S. Wow. So like Iowa, southern Illinois, Indiana, and yeah, it's, it's wild. It's all monocropping. Um, there's a lot of corn in this country, whole lot of corn. You know, at least it ends up in the beer and doing something valuable. God damn it. Aside from now doing God's work. (laughs) I love it. So look, we're still being vague. I want to get your beer story before we get into the story of your company, Community Brew Adventures, and we'll talk about more what we've sort of alluded to because I feel like people are going, what the fuck is this about? Get to the point. But I want to make sure we, we get where you were coming from first and your sort of background in beer to give it a bit of context. How'd that go down? Man? I really, I really like making them wait. Like this is really like a <laughs> sixth sense kind of scenario where you're watching the whole movie just to hear the little kids say, "I see dead people." That's <laughs> really, really the same kind of concept. By the time it gets there, you guys are going to be so disappointed. And I'm totally comfortable with that. Worth it. How did you? Uh, what's your story, bro? How did you personally uh, discover craft beer? Yeah, so so I've actually been in craft beer longer than most, about a decade, which is is kind of weird to be looking at this industry and being like that practically makes me an old man. Uh, but I actually got my start in IT. I worked for a, a Fortune Fortune 150 company doing IT, basically straight out of high school, and realized real quick I hated offices, which I think is a more common story than people realize. There's a lot of people who work in offices have for 20, 30 years and don't like working in offices. So when I got laid off there, uh, you know, I was talking to my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, and I was like, man, I, I really, really don't want to go back to working in an office, but I don't know what the hell it is that I want to do. And she asked a pretty sage question. She's a lot smarter than me. She said, well, what do you like? I like beer. Well, found, found my first job in the beer industry on Craigslist. Uh, yeah, so I started off just running uh, sales for a brewery in uh, Rhode Island, was uh, just focused on Rhode Island. Before I knew it, I had eastern Massachusetts, then all of Massachusetts, then Vermont, and then New Hampshire, southern Maine, uh, then Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York. And by that point, I'm basically running the whole northeast. Well, we uh, moved down south. My wife had always wanted to live outside of New England, where she's from, before we had kids. And uh, picked Charlotte area and got down here and just been in the industry ever since. Uh, went from acting as a sales director for breweries to being a full-time brewery consultant. And yeah, just uh, worked in that capacity, working with breweries all over the place. I've worked with breweries in Romania, breweries in Germany, breweries in Brazil, in Bali, uh, all over the U.S. and Canada. And my largest client, back when it was still just a, a little glint in the eye of its founder, was Community Brewing Ventures. So right. they uh, brought me on full time after it was pretty clear that I was already doing 40 hours a week for them and, you know, helping run operations and 
been with them ever since. I've uh, been working on the model, been working on growing this thing and really making it a uh, force within the industry. I love it, bro. So now, now we can actually tell them finally after 11 and a half minutes of teasing. What's the, what is Community Brewing Ventures? How does it work? I feel like that's, this, that's a broad conversation, but yeah, maybe get us a, maybe the history of, of the company, what, what maybe problem they were trying to solve. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I really feel like any sort of uh, company really is just an attempt to find a solution to a problem, whether that's solution is, I don't know, Hanes makes underwear because people need something to cover their butts with. Uh, you know, it, it's a problem in, in need of a solution. That's why the company exists. So that, really what, what we do, if we really summarize it down, our elevator pitch is we find, produce, and promote the most innovative brands in the beverage industry. Okay. Again, it's broad, it's vague. But what we really do is we work with small beverage companies, not just breweries. Uh, we also work with kombucha companies, hard coffee companies, seltzer companies, and everybody in between, uh, who, for whatever reason, they are capped out on their ability to grow. That could be one of several things, several reasons, whether that's due to a lack of manufacturing capacity. You know, They just don't have a system that's capable of making as much product as people want from them. Whether it's a lack of capital, uh, a lot of people don't realize you run out of money. It's not like you can just print more. And even if you can raise more, it means one of two things. Either you're going back to the bank for institutional debt, which is its own headache, or you're diluting your own equity just to be able to bring in additional funding. Neither one of those is a great option. Or option three, it's just companies that for whatever reason, they don't have the personnel to, to continue to grow. I mean, anytime you're running any sort of small business, I don't, I don't care if you're, you're making candles to sell at your local farmer's market, you're being asked to wear a million different hats. And, you know, in the brewing industry, it's more than most. You have to run a hospitality industry if you have a tap room. You have to run, you know, a production facility, a manufacturing facility, which is really what you are. You're having to manage human resources. And if you have to add sales and distribution on top of that, that might not be your aptitude. So you could have the best brand in the world, the best product in the world, and you get really good at running your tap room. You know what you're not great at? Running distro, dealing with wholesalers in, in disparate markets. So what we do is we work with those companies and we actually use licensing is, is the basic way that we function. We, we work with them to license their brand. We license their, their recipes. And then we work with them to pair them with the other side of the equation, which mm. is larger companies that have the opposite problem. Some of these large regionals that have huge facilities and they're really, really good at making consistent, perfect beer time in and time out. Uh, you guys have a couple of those in Canada. Moosehead, for example, is one that pops into my head. Uh, their issue is they can't fill up their capacity with their own brands. They've grown their brands as big as they're really going to get. So they have too much space and they make really good stuff. And you got smaller guys who can't possibly produce and distribute as much as people would really like to see from them. Yeah. So we basically consolidate those resources, work with both of them to get that product made and out into wider distribution and make sure that everybody benefits all the way from the you know manufacturer to the brewery to the actual consumer. Interesting. That's uh, obviously I've you know heard of breweries who proactively would – source a, a, a larger brewery to contract out of to maybe their, you know, their, their key brand. Maybe they're only going to distro one brand. You know, they might have been a brew pub on sale, on site sales only. And they've gone and, you know, they can go and get their lager that's going to be distroed across the province or state or whatever. But I've never heard of, I, I can't imagine them when you put it like that, that 
that skill set to even source all of that and then not only to figure out the next steps in the distro and then the you know i imagine there's like you said there's the licensing there's a whole bunch of laws and permits and all sorts of nonsense around that that uh you know is a headache and maybe some breweries would like to expand but they just don't want to deal with it so really you've got the perfect solution yeah for for us really we we handle everything and it's it's the breweries are plugged in at every juncture. I mean, we work with them directly. We work with them on everything. It's not like we're taking any of these companies' brands and making anything new. It's built right into the way that we work with them. We're just taking what they're already doing, what they're already seeing success with. And we, we call ourselves, we're the world's first ever brewery accelerator. Because okay. what we're really doing is accelerating the things that they're already seeing success with. But you're 100% right. I mean, if you're going with a contract brewery, really, it, you're running into the same exact problem just with a lower margin because they're going to want their money up front. They're dropping all this product on your doorstep. You're still going to have to figure out how to sell and distribute it. You're assuming all the risk. It's still, still, all it does is expand out how much you can physically produce, but it just takes that same problem of capital, same problem of aptitude in the market, same problem of, you know, cash outlay. And it just exacerbates all of that. Mm. We take care of all of that. Everything that we do for these breweries, this isn't a service they pay into. Mm. It's a service that we pay them for us to be able to do on their behalf. We okay. pay for everything, all the way from soup to nuts. We're the ones who have staff out in the market helping to sell the product. We help run marketing. We're the ones who are paying to manufacture it. It's a privilege for us to be able to work with these small, innovative breweries, the ones that built the foundation for this whole industry that got all of us into it in the first place, and to be able to really amplify what they're already doing. Hmm. Interesting. So that is really well explained. The the, the key part there that's, that's most fascinating to me is the, uh, the, the funding side of it. So I, I don't know how in-depth, and just tell me that we can, don't have to go into it, but how does that work? Like how, do you, how does Community Brewing Ventures make the money if you're funding it? So essentially, like, like maybe let's walk through, say Steam Theory, we're drink, drinking the Steam Theory from, um, from Dallas, Texas. I saw in the can here they brewed out of somewhere in Virginia. So you obviously have a larger regional brewery in Virginia. Mm-hmm. And therefore, so you would talk to Steam Theory and you'd be like, hey, guys, or they would come to you. Does it work both ways, I imagine? It goes both ways. We got plenty that reach out to us, want to work with us. We have others that we evangelize to as well. Um, there's really not a, a cap on what the model can support. Okay. Uh, it's just a matter of about finding the right partners who have the right problems that we can help them solve. Okay. Do you mind if we talk through an example using this beer? Since we're oh, yeah. Through? Okay. So this is all I do all day. So yeah, I am more than happy to talk. About okay, it. We, amazing. We have, we have no skeletons in our closet. Like we're more than happy <laughs> to talk about all of it. If we okay. start butting up against NDAs, I'll tell you about it. But aside from that, like I want people to know what it is that we're doing because you know for us it's exciting. Yeah, man. It's uh, this is even more like that's basically what you told me when we connected. But th- it's it's more inter- It's even more fascinating now that you're we're getting into the, the like you said nuts and bolts of this stuff. So. Steam Theory specifically, did you reach out to them or did they reach out to you? So with Steam Theory in particular, I reached out to them. Okay. Uh, they had a brand that was just really exciting. I mean, you look at it and if you look across all their stuff, I mean, they, they really have a coherent story, a coherent feel. Uh, they, have, they have a mascot. Like they, Edwin and Scarlet are the two people on all of their uh, cans. They have a steampunk vibe, which is just really tight, really, uh, really well executed. Um, and I loved seeing people who were able to build a story, able to build a narrative, able to build a feel 
hmm. beyond just we make a good beer. Because with 8,500 breweries in the U.S., there's, there's what, roughly about 1,200 or so in Canada. Don't quote me on Some that. Like that. I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's an enormous amount of breweries. And, and here, here's the secret. There's great beer everywhere. Not every brewery makes great beer, and, and that's not me singling out anybody in particular, but there is great beer everywhere. But what you don't wow. necessarily get is get great beer that can connect with people. Mm. And that's really the difference is there's still a lot of breweries who are very much that field of dreams mentality that if we brew it, they will come. That hasn't been the case for 10 years. You yeah. have to be able to connect with consumers. You have to be able to to really resonate with them. And so we love working with people like the folks at Steam Theory who, you know, it, it's practically a comic book. Like, you know, they have characters. They have a real energy. You go to their place and it feels like walking into steampunk heaven. That's awesome. I love it. So you were drawn to them by one particular um, product that they had already out on the market. Now, was it distributed or was it like a brewery at the time? Or was it like... Yep, so... Yeah, we, we always look to find people who are in package, if nothing else. Um, it's easy to lose sight considering how often a, a lot of the people, you know, like us, we're, we're, we're in the vast minority when it comes to craft beer consumers. People like yourself see people like myself. We, we are that 1%. Mm-hmm. We're the super users. I spend a whole lot of time drinking draft beer. I spend a whole lot of time seeking it out at the breweries. Most craft beer in this country is still sold in cans. Facts. Still sold in cans, still sold in bottles, still sold at groceries, still sold in, in you know, Total Wines or Green Co's or, or what have you. So for us, it's important to find people who do play in package because that's really the only way you're going to be able to scale them up to volume. So we, we don't mind ones that don't do large distribution. We don't mind ones that are, are small because we want to find the ones who are the, the hidden gems, the, the diamonds in the rough but they do need to be at a point where we're not incubating them. We're not looking for people who we're not consultants. We're not looking to find people who don't know what they're doing. We want to find people who have the right idea. They just can't get it where it needs to go. Hmm. Okay. I love that. It's very specific. And I guess that's how things work. You know, you got to niche it down as much as possible. So that's, that's amazing. So you like these guys, you saw they had a product. You're like, look, we can help you expand and, and get this out to a much wider market. Um, so you reach out to them, you meet, they're like, that sounds great. What's the next, like, what would be the next step once you've connected with the brewery and they've maybe told you, I imagine they will probably tell you what their pain points are, um, and what they were trying to achieve. And you're like, yep, we can definitely do that. And then you're like, all right, how do we do that? What, what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, from there, it's it's a whole lot of behind the scenes, the paper, not even paperwork, but it's a whole lot of the stuff that, you know, doesn't necessarily add value to the consumer. 99% of what we do at CBV isn't the sexy stuff, and it's not meant to be. Uh, it's, and it's the parts of the job that even the breweries don't want to do. So what we do from there is we, we run trademark searches, make sure that they're not, you know, running a beer name or, or a brand name that's only been surviving because it never got big enough anybody called them on it right. uh we make sure that you know we get label approvals in all of the states or provinces or countries that they're going to be doing distribution in uh we make sure that we work to scale up the recipe we work with their brewing team we also have a director of brewing operations on our end levi duncan he has uh three degrees in brewing science 10 time gabf judge guy is an absolute wizard and you know 
it's very easy if you're from outside the beer industry. You, you think if we're going from a five barrel batch to a hundred to a fifty barrel batch, you just multiply everything by ten. It doesn't work that way at all. You have things like hydrostatic pressure and uh, tank geometry, all that you have to take into account. So he is very, very good at being able to to work his magic and make it so that the inputs aren't nearly as important as making sure that what comes out of that final production tank, that final fermentation vessel, is exactly the same as it came out of the brewery in the first place. Hmm. Um, and that for us is the goal. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you're, you're going to want the same hops. You're going to want largely the same ingredients, but those proportions are going to have to change depending on the efficiencies of the brew house, what's happening, the altitude even. The goal is to make it so that that finished product that's on the shelf, what's in this can, is exactly the same as what would be coming out of their brew pub in Dallas. Hmm. And do they continue to make the same products? So, you know, you would scale with the uh, contracting of the larger batches, but do they continue to make it or do, does that uh, larger batch replace what they would make at the brew pub and they just do the one thing? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So for the breweries that we work with, they're all still independent breweries and most of them still retain an area we call it the home rights area where they just continue doing business exactly the same as they were before. Okay. Uh, for some of them, they even retain areas like they know they can grow into one or two more states, but they know they'd have trouble beyond that. Have fun. Keep, keep the states where you guys already had on your list and you know that you can grow into them, but you wouldn't be able to get beyond that. We'll worry about the rest of it. Everything okay. that we do is meant to be incremental to what they'd be able to do themselves. It's not about necessarily replacing their efforts, it's about being able to take it even further than they could do on their own. Gotcha. Okay. I love that. That's great. So they get to, like you said, retain their autonomy they don't really feel like they're being like taken over or someone else is un in control. It's literally a partnership in the purest sense because it's financial too. Yep. We can't make anything new without their, without their say so. I mean, anything that we make is something that they've made themselves. And it, for us, that is an advantage. I mean, what well, the example I always use is the next hazy IPA is not going to come out of Anheuser-Busch. It's not going to come out of any of Anheuser-Busch's associated craft breweries. They move with the momentum of a monolith. Like they are such large organizations, it's impossible for them to be innovative enough to be able to create the next trend. Mm -hmm. When we're working with these small breweries, frankly, they, they have so much less to lose. Like if they run a beer and it's five barrels and it falls flat, you know, even though that is an appreciable part of their total, their total revenue, it's way less of an investment, way less of a headache, and they have fewer people to answer to. So that's where the innovation comes from. So even if we're running five beers right now from Steam Theory, if they come to us and they're like, holy shit, we got the next big thing. This has been tearing it up in Dallas. We're absolutely crushing it. We think this has legs everywhere. For us, it's just a matter of scaling that up and getting it out to the markets we work in. We can move mm. faster than anybody else in the industry because we move as fast as our partners move. Mm, okay. That's a really large bonus that uh – I imagine isn't very common even with regular contracting relationships because you can just pull the trigger ASAP because of that. Okay, okay. So to get back to this, so you figure that out. Now, how do you decide on which uh, facility that has the space, such as this one in Virginia for Steam Theory, how did you decide on this particular facility that would be a, you know, how do you, how do you put those two pieces together? Yeah, so we had all of the uh, co-packing partners that we work with are ones that we have uh, worked with with our D9 brand. So D9 Brewing Company at Cornelius, North Carolina is actually the brewery that CBV originally grew out of. 
So okay. it is not the same thing. Uh, we brought in a whole new group of investors, but the founder of D9 is still our CEO. He's the founder of CBV and he's the uh, leader of the board of directors. So there's a level of continuity there. And what that means is that D9 for us is effectively our in-house brand. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that when we bring on new co-packing partners, that we're running beer that we understand fully. And we're running beer that that we are taking the risk for our own brand equity on before we run any of our partners' beer through that. So what we do is we try to find co-packers that not only have the space, but also have the capability. Because for us, you know, one of our advantages is that, yes, we can run 60-ounce cans. And especially in the U.S., this is where the majority of the business is. But we can also run 12s if we need to, 12-ounce sleeks if we need to. We can run bottle. We're never going to run bottles, but... We could theoretically run bottles if we wanted to. We can run 19.2 stovepipes. We can do overboxes, printed cans, labels. We have uh, facilities that have pasteurization technology. So if we want to put fruit juice in something, there's never a risk it's going to explode in your hand like certain other breweries, 450 North. So, um, you know, we, we want to make sure that we are never constrained from being able to help our partners get to market because of a manufacturing shortcoming because that's the biggest issue for most of these breweries is you know uh, for, for a lot of breweries they may even have their own canning line but if they have their own canning line and they really want to do stovepipes for the convenience stores their machine's probably not going to be able to run those they only run certain sizes that's never a problem for us What's if we want to be able sorry a uh, stovepipe is that like a red bull type of thing Ah, no, stovepipe are like the uh, 19.2 ounce, like the big suckers. You'll see like, uh, I I don't know if they cross the border in Canada, but if you go like your average, um, uh, like like Quick Stop or QT or something in the States or Wawa, they'll have some of these large cans. And then these things are 19.2 ounces, like they are are big suckers, uh, and they'll be served single serve. Gotcha, gotcha. Very popular at the store. Right, right. Sorry to cut you off. Yes, continue. That's okay. I have nothing interesting to say. So you're on the right <laughs> No, I see what you mean. Like the, the canning lines probably can't do those things. Like we don't have that here, at least in yep. the in the craft sector. I've seen them in the like the the shitty low end, you know, ten percent bad yep. boys or whatever. Um, but yes, okay, yeah, exactly right. That type of gross stuff. So yes, continue. Sorry, but the yeah. So basically, we never want to have our ability to get something to market be restricted by what we can make because that's our our whole goal is you know as much capacity as we want we can do everything from 30 barrel batches all the way up to uh, 1200 barrel batches at a time right and we can basically run uncapped because even the largest contract brewing facilities eventually they run out of space it's not a problem for us because we're we're not invested in these assets we're we're effectively doing what you know uh what amazon's doing so like like say say that you're like wanting to like create an app for your phone like uh when on the when the folks over in uh untapped were creating that app they didn't invest in data centers and building new servers what they did was they worked with amazon web services because amazon in order to run their company had to install massive data centers bigger than they could ever use and what they do is they lease out space on them so that's the infrastructure is already there. It's way, way cheaper to be able to put your dollars and your focus on building that app and let Amazon or Google uh, or Microsoft run the infrastructure because they already had to have it. It's exactly the same case as what we do. 85% of the brewing capacity in the U.S. is slack. It's not being used. 
all we have to do is find the folks who have that extra capacity that they couldn't find people to fill up if they wanted to. And we can promise them a whole portfolio of brands that are really going to be able to provide them some value and we'll be able to provide the brand some value too. Did you say 85%? Yeah. Jesus Christ, that is insane. That's a well, lot. think about every brewery in the U.S. And, and in Canada and in the U.K. and in Japan and in Italy. They, you build a whole system and one of two things happens. Either you build a system that's way too big or you build a system that's way too small, inevitably. So there is a whole lot of systems, a, lot, a whole lot of places that have a 30-barrel system that they run you know, twice a month because mm. that's all they can run through. There, mm. You can run that a whole lot more than twice a month. You got a lot of these larger breweries that, you know, have brands, some of these heritage brands and legacy brands, they thought the ride was never going to end. And they were like, we're going to be doing 600,000 barrels. Let's build a uh, facility that can uh, suffice, that can handle that. And then we saw the long tail continue to grow. A lot of these small neighborhood breweries started to pop up and all of a sudden they're capping out at 80,000 barrels of their own brand, but they have a facility that can do way, way more. Ooh, those okay. those are the problems we're able to solve. Right, and it's literally a win-win-win. You win, the small brewery wins, the big brewery wins. Okay, I love. And it. even I the wholesalers it. and the retailers win. Honestly, we simplify their supply chain, so for them, it's a much simpler uh, it's much simpler arrangement for them to just have to deal with us than to have to deal with a hundred smaller brands. So we have really created this situation where we're able to facilitate the long tail in a way that everybody winds up benefiting from. Mm, Okay, I love it. I love it. This isn't really making sense. So then, okay, so say Steam Theory, you've gone and picked, you said five brands from them? Is that accurate? Yep. Yep, we got five brands presently from them. Presently. So the ones that uh, that you shot up here, there was this, there's a single IPA, double IPA, um... There's another IPA as well, actually. It was three IPAs, if I'm not mistaken. All from Steam uh, Nope, it is the Mexican-style lager. So from them, I'm trying to remember. I think I sent you also something from Bay Cannon. This is going to be a surprise for all of us because we uh, have tried to record this episode three times now. That is true. And between uh, illness and toddlers, all on my side, this has been an ordeal. Uh, so, no, ahead. from... From Steam Theory, we have a single IPA. We have a hazy IPA. We also have a the Mexican style. Oh, hold up one sec, man. I don't know what's happening here, but it's like your sound just was like every time you talk, it was like flashing on the screen that you were muting. And it was, uh, okay, now you're back in Bizzo. I've never seen that before. That was trippy. That was, that was funny. Yeah, because it's showing it to me down in the bottom, but now it's showing the uh, the volume. So that's bizarre. It must have been a tech glitch on the uh, on this side. Apologies, please. Uh, oh, so not at all. So we were saying, Steam Theory has the that uh, single IPA, which is that I think that's what we're doing next, if I'm not mistaken. So next up, we're doing we got two single IPAs, one hazy, one West Coast. So we have their Hops Against Humanity West Coast IPA. Next up is going to be the Juice Caboose, which is their hazy single IPA. Also have Threat Level Midnight, so if you're an Office fan, that one's gonna that one's gonna land on that. Uh, that's an American style stout, Hippodrome, which is a uh, Meritzen, an Oktoberfest, and nice. the Mexican style lager that we're drinking right now, Vamanos Manos. Okay, I love it. So you got me the West Coast and the Hazy, and then there's a double IPA from them, I believe, or it's from somebody else. No, I think that's from someone else. 
It is. Yep, the double IPA. I forget if I sent you uh, Liberty Risk from Bold Mariner or if I That's sent it. you Elias from Bay Cannon, but we, we carry quite a few beers. <laughs> yeah, man, You're not messing around at all. Okay, so that's what you're doing. So then I was only drilling down on that so we could paint the picture for, for, for how you've been working with Steam Theory. So, okay, you've got, like, who decides on which beers that they would like to uh, grow? Is it them to say, hey, these five beers are the ones that people really love, and I think that we, you know, if we were able to get the, the product, the cans, into more stores in different states and different territories... It would, it would kill it. Is that really how it goes? Or do you say, hey, there's a need for this style in this place? So how, how does that conversation go? So it's a collaborative process, and it's both of the things you just, just described. We always go to the breweries, and the first question we ask is, what do you have that you think has the opportunity to scale? What do you think that, that people are going to want to see more of in the greater market? And one of the things that we, we realized really early on is that a lot of the breweries – they do have beers that do well for them, but what does well in your own backyard and more specifically what does well in your tap room mm. isn't necessarily what will do well in a market where you're not able to hand sell the product and you're not as well known. Like amber ales are a perfect example. It's not a style that people like to talk about. It's not a real sexy style, but a lot of breweries actually do really well with their amber ales if they're focused on the tap room because there is a category of consumer uh, a lot of times these are people who are there because it's their local brewery. Their local, it's basically their local watering hole. And so it's not for them about seeking out the next hot amber ale. It's just they drink, they drink amber beer and this is their local and so they're going to drink a ton of it. I can't take that from a brewery in Texas and try pushing that in Colorado. It's never going to work. So we do have to filter on our end, and a lot of that is a, a combination of, A, our experience in the larger market. We, uh, For our purposes, we can effectively act as a market research organization for them, which is advantageous. So we've got years of experience and a whole lot of experience across our leadership team. Uh, but in addition to that, we do have to load balance to a degree. I can't run five Pilsners in a single market. I, I love Pilsner. Pilsner and West Coast IPA is probably – 80% of what I drink these days, but uh, you only really need about one or two before you're starting to cap up on, on the market and your ability to actually sell them through. So internally, we have to keep that in mind when we start looking at the markets we want to roll the products into. And that's always the conversation. We always work with the breweries on that because we want to focus on the areas where they have the greatest aptitude. I don't want to take a brewery that really kills it with IPAs and try pushing all of their stouts. I want to take a lager-focused brewery and tell them, hey, you got to do sours now. We're, we're working with these breweries because we know that they're great at these things, and they just need to find the audience for it. So for us, it's about working with them to figure out where those competencies are. Hmm. So when you were saying that you don't want to have, like, say, five pilsners in a particular market, does that mean, like, five pilsners in your portfolio when you're selling to that market? Or does that mean five pilsners from that particular brewery? So that would be across our entire portfolio. So we have staff who, who are in the market. They sell across our entire portfolio. And there are certain styles that you can run as many as you'd want to. Like I can run hazy IPAs all day. That's not a problem. I could carry 50% of our portfolio could be hazy IPAs. And I guarantee you I would be able to sell all of them. Gotcha. Um, there are certain styles that they tend to be as a category a little more, uh, you know, to throw out a, a school word, an SAT term, uh, oligopolistic. So you tend to only need a couple of top runners and they're going to basically 
speak for the entire category. Mm-hmm. That's also fine. But for us, when we work with our wholesalers, when we work with our retailers, when we work with the consumer, it's important for us to say whatever need you have, whatever use occasion style you're looking for, I want you to be satisfied with something in our portfolio. So having a balanced portfolio is is very, very important to us because the biggest way for us to lose money is anytime we walk, we interact with a customer and they leave not having something that's from CBV. Because I guarantee you that no matter what you're into, no matter what you like, no matter what you you really place value on in your consumption, we've got something for you. And it's our job to make sure that we're providing it for you and that we're communicating that to you. Okay. Does that ever um, pose any challenges with breweries to say if they're like, oh, look, man, my, my Pilsner is, is fire. It's the one that I think is, you know, everyone's loving. And you're like, ah, oh, but we've already got that many does that ever become a challenge or how do you sort of work around those type of uh, conversations yeah i mean it's always a challenge to be to be able to to load balance properly but we're also at the we're we're fortunate enough that right now alone we uh, do business in 14 states. We've also uh, shipped beer to Canada, shipped beer to the Netherlands. We're shipping beer to the UAE here real soon. Uh, we have the channels. So not every brewery we're trying to put in our entire footprint. That mm. That's not workable anyhow. You know, you, all you're going to do at that point is, is splash big, go extremely shallow, and you're not actually building a real brand connection there. So with any of the brands, we try to focus on three to five states kind of day one and focus on making sure that we are going deep and we're, we're growing organically. Mm-hmm. So that rather than just trying to chase the next market, we want to make sure that people are pulling that product off the shelves, not just once, but again and again and again. And, you know, making that a part of their regular craft beer habit, mm-hmm. something that they enjoy. And that gives us a lot more flexibility to have five or six Pilsners in the portfolio. We just got to make sure I'm not trying to run every single one of them in Georgia. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. That's great. So then do you try to partner breweries with the facility, with the space to be able to do it in physical proximity to the, those, you know, three to five markets that you begin with for like a freshness, you know, how some like Oscar blues, they have like a, Colorado and I think it's a North Carolina facility and Stone has the Virginia and blah, blah, blah. Like, is that something that you keep in mind as far as well? Like, if this is a Dallas brewery, but we're really going to attack the East Coast. Having someone in Virginia is great because you've got the DMV, it's short drive up to New York, even Massachusetts, and it's local enough where it's like, as it's not coming from Cali, and that's a certain warm-ass truck for five yeah. days. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So everything that we produce goes straight to, we actually have a centralized distribution center. Mm-hmm. So it's not as important to us where those, those co-packing partners are because it's all going back to the same place. And that's real advantageous for the wholesalers that we work with too because it means we can one send delivery. fully loaded trucks every time. Yeah, it's, it's one shipment. Um, for them, they could get 10 brands on one truck off of one stop, which is something that very, very few people are able to offer them. That's great. Uh, and for us as well, we brew to order. We're, we're not in the business of sitting on beer. We don't brew beer and then try to sell it. We make sure that we work with our wholesaler partners to figure out what their needs are going to be. Mm. And because we don't own the production facilities, we're, it's not money out of our pocket if those tanks are sitting empty. We only need to brew what we know that we can sell. 
And so it means that when that product hits the distribution center, we're not sitting there scrambling around saying, oh, shit, it's got a six-month shelf life. That means we got five months and 29 days to sell it and hope to God we get it out of here. It means if it's not gone within a month and a half, then somewhere along the line, our process broke. Right. Okay. And then you take those lendings, apply it again, and make sure that uh, plug those holes and make sure it's open for the next time. Okay. I love that. That is uh, That makes a lot of sense. On that tip, fresh um, beer every time. Fresh beer every time. I love. It. I really love the idea of the distribution center that allows uh, you know, that one point of distribution, which which further consolidates the value for you guys um, that you guys deliver. Sorry, to the particularly to the to the wholesale to the retailers. I'm sorry. In the end, so that you're able to, they don't have to have seven trucks rocking up, and then their staff member has to let them in. And brother, it's like one thing. Here you go. Here's all your stuff. Good to go. And they can give you that direct feedback. And if you're missing something in your portfolio. I imagine that those retailers would be able to tell you your reps, like, hey, people keep asking for this. They're really loving Steam Theory. Do they have a barley wine or something? Like, can we, you know, and then you're able to to bring that back to the broom. Hey, they're asking for this. Um, is that something that you can deliver? So we always lean on our ability to basically be market research for the breweries we work with. I'm never going to go to a brewery and say, yo, you got to make a barley wine. They want a barley wine. But by the same token, if we're seeing that we have a gap in our portfolio of a barley wine and we have done this is reach out to the breweries we work with and say, hey, guys, we really need a winter seasonal. What's everybody running? Let's see what would be the best fit for the need. Mm. Who, who really crushes it with their Maybach? We, that's really hot this spring, seeing a lot of demand for that. Okay, we got three breweries who are doing it, but you guys really crush it with your fall season. We know we're going to want to run that. Let's take this other Maybach and let's be able to run that through because we really need to fill this gap. Hmm. And for us, it means that we're able to really leverage the expertise, leverage the skill set, and leverage the, the ingenuity, the innovation of a huge, huge subset of just maverick, renegade, awesome, independent, individual brewers who, are, you know, any style, any need, anything, I guarantee you someone within our network is doing it. It's just contingent on us to listen to what the market is saying. Mm-hmm. Instead of us trying to push a product, find out what they're looking for and find mm-hmm. out who that we work with does it best and be able to provide it for them. I love it. And you've got so many, oh, could you go the next Yeah, Thank you so much. Um, there's so many breweries that you guys work with that you're able to, you've got such a breadth of, of uh, breweries that you're able to tap for those particular needs. Thank you so much. Um, so that, I mean, that, that puts you guys once again at, at an advantage that you're able to um, not only make it work for you guys, which also works for the distributor, but then you're offering the breweries another, like another, like another another skew is what we're looking for, that they can sort of drop off, which is perfect. So they're getting more cash out of it, and then sitting back doing nothing, and you're just going like, guys, what's up with the what's up with the winter season? Boom, boom, and then you just like. They'll get that call, and they're like, "Yeah, sure, go for it." Because there's no skin off their back. They're straight away like it's in your hands, right? You're financing it, you're sourcing everything top to bottom, and they just get their licensing fees, which I imagine is the next thing I want to get into is the finance side. But yeah, so so for us, the the goal was to just take all of the things that a larger organization does well, because there there are things that, as much as I'm loath to admit it, as much as I hate them as a company. 
Anheuser-Busch is a very efficient, effective company. Mm. They manufacture consistent product. Bud Light produced today will be the same exact thing as Bud Light produced 10 years from now in a different continent. So, you know, they are very, very good at distribution, very, very good at, at product freshness, uh, very, very good at, you know, uh, like, you know, economic efficiency, economies of scale. That's wonderful. You know what they suck at? They suck at ingenuity. They suck at making a real connection with customers. They make suck at innovation. They suck at a lot of things as well. And you know who's good at those things? Small independent breweries. So the whole impetus behind us doing this was being able to find a way to leverage the fact that there are advantages in being small. You can be nimble. You can be, you can take risks. You can be imaginative. You can drive this industry forward. You can connect with your community. All that's amazing. All that's wonderful. And all that needs to stay in place. But we do have to find a way to leverage some of those efficiencies, some of those hard earned lessons from these larger breweries as well. So if we accomplish nothing else as a company, if we're able to combine the the advantages of being small and the advantages of being large, that's our win condition. I love it. I love that. This is, uh, this is fantastic. So with that, uh, I think it's time for the next one. We're going to stick with our Texan Brethren Steam Theory, and we're going to rock Juice Caboose, Hazy IPA, loving it. Uh, tell us about, oh yes, yeah, so the steampunk got the little, uh, the lady with the glasses, uh, what do oh, they call yeah. them? The goggles there, uh, the hot dress. That is Scarlet, by the way. Yeah, as one of their two mascots, which you show up at the right time at the brewery, they'll even have somebody in cosplay. Oh, damn, they're taking it that serious. I love it. Oh, they take it that serious. Yeah, Ch Chuck's a wild man. I love it. I'm here for it. Let's, yeah, uh, so this is a uh, yeah. hazy IPA from these guys. Um, Runs with uh, Comet Mosaic and Azaka hops, so you're definitely getting some of the some of the faves in there. It's juicy, but it's not over the top. Okay. One of the things that's important to me, at least, and we do carry a, a, a spectrum of hazy IPAs, including a new one releasing soon. Uh, drinkability is important to me. I, okay. I I can enjoy hazy IPA as much as the next haze boy. My my wife is a huge haze boy. Um, and very, very mad that being pregnant, she cannot uh, drink nearly as, as many big, thick boys as as she used to. But for Can me, I like something that I, I – what was that? You can't drink any at all. I, is that right with pregnancy? Excuse my extraordinary uh, – She can have a, a, a nice four-ounce pour every so often, and That's she'll take fair. a sip of everything I drink because she's really, really mad at me for being able to come on podcasts like this and drink three beers in short succession and say, babe, it's for work. It's – I'm trying to bring the money home, you know. Got to take the, care the, of the sacrifices family. I make. You're oh, a she makes more money than me, so that doesn't even work. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for hazy IPAs, for me, I don't want something I'm going to take like half of. Like I'm going to drink like eight ounces of, and then I'm like, oh man, I am so full. I am miserable. Yeah. This is so green, and this is one I love because it is. It's well balanced. Mosaic is an incredible hop, but it gets used so often, and, and I think you know, being able to balance it with the Azaka, with the Comet. Uh, and also take some of the edge off some of those notes on mosaic that people people don't realize can be a little rough. Some of those garlicky onion notes that mosaic is prone to giving off. Yes, you know, being able to add a little more of those tropical notes and just kind of round the edges on it. it, it it's drinkable as hell, enjoyable as hell, and light enough you can have two or three of them without an issue. I love it. And it was mosaic as like a comment, yeah. Yes, sir. Perfect. Cheers, bro. Get that in you. Hey, cheers. Love it. Hmm. Okay, yes. 
So it's got, um, I say, it's definitely on that lighter side where it's more like opaque than uh, murky, and that lends what you're saying. Like the murky stuff is the one that kind of fills you up a bit, whereas this is definitely on the light. And it's six percent. I think six between six and seven percent personally is the money zone. I think for. Uh, for IPAs, I just I love that. I think that's enough flavor. It's more than the five, but like once you start getting to that, you know, the eight plus, I still enjoy them. But God, man, they, they get you. Well, and I'm a big believer. Like, there's a concept. Uh, I think I think it might have been David Gluckman who like codified as this idea of like weekday versus weekend consumption, mm. and both both of those are great. I love a good 13% barley wine. You know what? I'm, when I'm not drinking 13% barley wine, fucking Wednesday. Because I got <laughs> shit to do the next day. I got to watch my kid. You know, I got home from a whole day of work. I, I just want something I can drink and enjoy that's good, but that I'm not going to be wasted at the end of it and it's not going to take too much out of me. I don't have to think too hard about. I have no issue with a big, turbid IPA. You know when I'm not drinking that? Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I'm drinking that on Saturday. I'm drinking that on Sunday. That's a special occasion kind of thing, but that leaves a whole lot of the week. I mean, I've been in this industry for 10 years. I drink more craft beer than just about anybody you'll ever meet, but you know what's always in my refrigerator? I got the shirt on right now is uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Classic. It's classic beer, and I've had more of that than I've had Bud Light. It's one of the best beers of all time. It's not the beer I have to think about. That's the beer I drink on Wednesday. And then on the weekends, that's when I start looking for some of the more adventurous, more, more intense stuff. But you, there's something to be said about beers that you can pull out of your fridge and enjoy and and they're reliable and they're fantastic and they're nuanced, but that you're not going to have to sit down with for 30 minutes and run a whole bottle share just to be able to enjoy. That's uh, that's a fact. You know, what's funny is that Wednesdays are my night for those beers. So I, I, during the pandemic, yeah, it's really funny because you said, and I love that you said Wednesday. So I, I, I had to make a, uh, as with you, when I, I'm on like, you're in the industry, like deep. I'm on the periphery, whereas like, you know, I own an agency, I do my other thing, but this takes up a significant portion of my time. So I have to drink full work, you know, you know it's tough life. But it, sacrifices you make. The sacrifice hits you here a little bit. I'm trying to figure that out. So when the pandemic, before the pandemic, I was drinking until I kind of felt like I was going to get a cold or something. And then I'd stop just beforehand, like take a couple of days off or three days, four days. And I was like, all right, okay, I'm probably good now. And then go back. And then sometimes I'd go too far and end up sick for a week and a half or something. And then no drinking, then it would, it would mess me up. So during the pandemic, I'm like, I'm going to cut this shit. Um, and obviously I was doing that because I was traveling a lot when things were open and everything was normal. And I didn't have control over when I drank. If I happened to be at a place, doesn't matter what night it was, I'm drinking. If I'm there and that's where I'm at, then it is what it is. So now I was like here all the time. I was able to make a really serious routine. So I was able to have you know Tuesday on and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday as my four days of the week. So two days back to back off and then Wednesday off. And then on and off throughout this time, I started making Wednesdays. I was like, ah, oh, I feel all right. Like I could probably have a little. You know, little brew, but I'm like, I don't want to drink all night. What about at like, I'm like a, a vampire, so I, we like we work until three in the morning type of thing on our own schedule. And um, I was the same way until I got a three year old. I hear I hear about that, so I'm I'm, I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm a little concerned whenever that happens for me too, because I'm have to change my ways, and I don't know about that. But like at the end of the night, after dinner, as like a dessert, I, I'm like, well, I'm not drinking, so I could have a 10, 11 percent 
stout preferably is usually when I have some sort of barrel aid stuff. I've got cellar and all this stuff that just keeps bulking up. I never really get to drink it. I could drink that by myself and you, it barely touches the sides when you're having it by yourself after dinner at the end of the night. Like you don't really feel a mild buzz and that was great. So I always find that those ones, because I don't, it wasn't like in conjunction with other beers. That's how I sort of enjoyed it. And it's just hilarious that you happen to bring up the Wednesday of that day because I was like, ah, oh, I kind of look forward to it now because now I get to kind of tap in my cellar where I'm like, when the fuck am I going to drink this 11% barley wine? Like, I know I have a bunch of those things. I just, I don't even know when I'm going to get around to it. You know? I'm sure you run into this. And I, and I think that's the, uh, the, the story of people who are way too deep into craft beer is, you know, honestly too, some of that stuff in your cellar will just continue to accumulate and you're looking for any special occasion to drink it. And that special occasion may be, uh, <laughs> holy shit. Did you know that it's international French Friday? Seems like yeah. a great time to break open a huge bottle of something. Let's do it. Uh, oh yeah. Once my wife drinks as much beer as I do. And so now that she's not drinking anymore, um, I have not bought beer in four months now and I am net positive on what is in my cellar. Uh, just the hazards of the industry and, and it's amazing how quickly it accumulates, which sounds like a first world problem. And it really is. is. I have a dedicated beer fridge, full size fridge. This isn't like a little, a little no, stubby, no, no, no. like a college fridge. This is a full size fridge dedicated to beer. I have a kegerator that no longer holds kegs. It holds packaged beer. I have a wine rack filled with beer instead of wine. And I have an old heaven's hill distillery barrel. I turned into an end table and you know what covers the entire top of that beer. Yeah. I'm out of room. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think we have similar problems, actually. I do have the college fridge, like the bar fridge is full. I've hijacked the whole on our food fridge. The whole bottom is just cans and double stacked all the way. Like I think it's like eight rows to the back with maybe like six to seven rows of those. Behind the computer right here, I have three cabinet, which is all bottles, I don't know, maybe a hundred or so bottles. And then because we're in a one-bedroom apartment in the room, literally hold next to the bed, there's like 20, 30 boxes and then just spilled out. I used to work out there. Now literally the entire part next to the bed <laughs> is just beer. So I, I, I think we're probably about the same there. And it's like, I, I, it, just, it just appears. I don't know. It's just there. I don't even know what happens. Well, it, it, it's so funny because, you know, if this was anything other than beer, we'd be on an episode of Hoarders. <laughs> And so one of, one of my best friends, he, he says all the time, like he knows he is the world's biggest geek about sports. This guy can quote women's college softball stats 10 years ago to you from oh, memory. Okay. He's yeah. just that kind of geek. I know the uh, and he'll say, and he'll say all the time, like, you know, if this, if he was into anything as much as he's into sports, he would be considered the biggest nerd on the planet, but because it's something socially acceptable, no one judges him for it. We should be on the same episode as the lady with twenty-seven cats, but yeah. because it's beer, it's like it's a hobby. It's a, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you can mask a lot of things under the guise of a hobby, I guess, right? Which oh a, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But yes, it is. It's problematic. It's fun, but I also sometimes like I don't know. I don't want these things to go to waste. There's so much fire. I'm like, I'm like that's why the Wednesday for me, and I, I imagine we all kind of have our solutions because. My main problem is potentially yours as well is that you get the hazy IPAs and they have a lifespan. So you're like, oh man, if I don't drink this now, then that always gets the priority. Always, always. Mm -hmm. And then all the other things are neglected. Like, ah, oh, it's got years on them. I'm good. And then they just end up sitting there and sitting there and then 
all of a sudden you have our problems that, that we kind of have. So it's, uh, it's sort of hard to sort of mitigate it. Like, what do you do? How do you fit that into your life? You're drinking week or whatever. Well, I think that's a uh, man. This is like conversations making us seem like really fucking no depressing. <laughs> it's not that bad, guys. It's not that bad. We're oh fun. man, but I, I do think like that. That is like how ninety percent of like verticals first start is. You know, I know like I got some Deschutes Barrel Aged Black Butte verticals that literally started because I knew I liked the beer, and you know I'd buy it. And then to your point, we have other things that I knew were less shelf stable. So I'd reach for them first. And before I know it, I've got six years worth of Deschutes barrel aged black butte just sitting in my fridge. It's like, well, fuck now it's a feature piece. Now I got to host a damn bottle share just to get rid of it. And that's the problem because you can't always continue. You can, you can knock a hazy IPA back in a few of them in an evening, anytime on a Wednesday. But then when it comes down to the bottles and they're 11%, you can either do what I do and have one bottle all to yourself. Or like you said, you can't just have one bottle of those to shoot uh, beers. Like you've got to, you've got to that hassle of getting six years worth. So well, I gotta try them side by side. Lord, I went to a lot of effort on that. See, there you go. Right. So what are you supposed to do? And then once again, there's the problem. So when, it could not be more first world problems. And I know from everyone I've spoken to in the beer industry, whether it's brewing side or adjacent side like us or whatever. No, you got you're in it. Sorry, like like us, the beer media people and and. Things like that, it's, it's the same problem. It's just like, the, it's because beer people are so damn giving. Everyone is so generous. Everyone, uh, my friend uh, Giles in Vermont always calls it beer karma. It's like everyone's just like, it always comes back to you because I don't really know anybody that's stingy with beer. Like, hey man, you need this? Have you ever tried this? Oh, take this, please. You need it. That's what make us all feel good. And it's so unique in that fashion too, because I guarantee you, you're never gonna get a guest get a guest on this show who's like, "Man, I got a vertical of like 1980s cocaine that just got given to me. It just kept accumulating." Like, and here we are. Hell no, no one gives cocaine out like that. But they're gonna <laughs> get a shit ton of beer and they're gonna share it with people. And it's about that communal aspect. And yeah. for me, the community and community brewing ventures, and and even before me coming on board with them, like my entire career, like that's that's what made me fall in love with this industry. And for me, that's also what we have to preserve people who are on the outside, even, even some of the people in your position on the beer media side, you don't always see the finance and the economic side of this industry, but it's the day to day lives. of A lot of these small business owners who are part of our community, who are running these breweries, who are running these beverage companies. It's hard by its very nature. The economics of our industry are upside down. Mm. and it affects everybody who works in it. And if we're able to find a way that, because one of two things is, is going to happen, we either fix it or it's going to sink the whole ship. Mm. And I really don't want my three-year-old daughter to, you know, uh, I, I say, you know, here in the U.S., when she turns 21, let's be real, mm. when she's like 14, and is like, Dad, I want a beer. I don't want it to be at the point where, you know, her options go back to being Bud, Bud Light, Pabst. I, yeah. I want her to be able to have the opportunity to enjoy some of this. I want her to have the opportunity if she wants to. Like, she tells me all the time now she wants to work in a brewery. She's three. She also tells me she wants to join the Paw Patrol. But, you know, I want that to be an option for her when the time comes. And, you know, if we can find a way to preserve the things that make this industry so special, 
yeah. while fixing a lot of the things and, and a lot, not just the finances, but if we can fix some of the issues of, of sexism and, and exclusionary uh, hiring, exclusion of, of, of demographics and consumption, if we can find ways of, of providing a more supportive environment, but still not losing that community aspect, still not losing the innovation, still not losing, you know, the things that got us so into it in the first place. That that has to be the goal. Hundred percent, man. Well said. I think that's it. That's uh, we, we even started a nonprofit called LinkUp, where we uh, are proactively trying to diversify the craft beer industry by providing. Uh, like the network and also finances to buy PLC, people of color who don't have, uh, either don't know about beer or you know, don't know it's an option, trying to introduce new people and also about to start a job board to help people bring them into the industry because the only way, there's only so many white dudes with beards and we need to, you know, beer is for everybody and you obviously understand this. The more people of different backgrounds that we have in beer, it's going to make the industry grow for your daughter later on because it's going to be a more interesting place when inside a tap room looks like the world outside because right now it doesn't really. And then on top of at that, all. The, at all. And the amount of flavors and interesting concepts that people from different places, like, hey, have you ever tried this? Like, yo, what the fuck? That sounds amazing. Let's do it. And then yeah, that could lend itself to the menus inside the breweries. And it's just like, it's so ridiculous that it's so deeply white. So I, I, you know, I love that you even mentioned that because I don't think a lot of people understand how serious that problem is. Can you tell people how to, how to find out more about that initiative and, and how to contribute to it? Yes, sir. It's uh, linkupbeer.org. And our last season, so this is the adjunct series. We actually took a pause from this over when we first connected, actually. This is, this is what it was about. So you and I connected, I want to say, in probably June. And I was like, hey, <laughs> I love it. I'm down. Let's do it. You sound, the whole company sounds amazing. Um, we're actually taking the summer break. It was supposed to be two weeks. And then we were doing another season. We ended up taking about five or six weeks off. But then we launched Link Up and we did a full season of, uh, that we're going to continually add to interviewing the breweries. We actually did a series of six uh, collaborative beers with different breweries. And they, um, they all did their own beer, just did whatever they did, called it Link Up. We had no, didn't want to bother them with the labels. They like, do what you want to do, uh, make whatever beer you want that fits in your schedule, and you just give a, a portion of the profits to us to be able to fund us, and um, we give that back. So we did interviews with all of those. So if you want to learn more about that, um, check out that season as well. And we're just actually in the process now of booking in the early 2022 uh, series of collabs we're doing four times a year. Uh, you know, we've, we've got a, actually a, uh, um, a partnership with Cicero. So I got an email today from one of my partners uh, in the company, and uh, we're like a registered nonprofit. It's all above board, you know, with the government. And uh, we got our second scholarship now. We're giving out for uh, a young woman from Colombia who we actually got her a job or helped her get a job at a brewery here in Montreal, and she wants to do the Cicerone. So I'm going to give her one of these scholarships that uh, Cicerone gifted us, which is amazing. So it's it's working, and you know, it's only been a few months of doing this. So I'm really glad you brought that up, dude. Great no, I, I think that's awesome. And I mean, Canada's definitely been seeing more and more of a push for that. I mean, you guys have Ren Navarro up there, who's one of the most you know, uh, incredible people in DEI and the entire beer industry across the world. Uh, and, you know, on, honest to God, like it's this kind of work is so important. And, and it's one of the things I try to drive home to people. It's not that we have too many people who in this industry who look like me and you. We have exactly the right amount of people in this industry who look like me and you. The problem is all we have is people who look like me and you. So none of it's yeah. about making it so there's fewer 
bearded ass white dudes who look like a fucking hipster Lex Luthor like I do. No, no, no. It's about <laughs> being able to open this up. And one of the things that really infuriates me is how often in this industry, and it cooled off a little with COVID, I think just because people realized what the sore spot it was, but, you know, has craft beer reached saturation? We, we can't have any, we can't support any more breweries. We are as big as we can possibly get. You dumbasses, like we still have more than 50% of the population between women and people of color, historically marginalized communities who we have made zero effort to be bring into the fold. And not only that, but we have actively built these walls around our industry to, to keep it from being able to expand. So if we want this industry to continue to grow, even just from a financial industry business perspective, you love craft beer, it is vital for us to to, to make it so that we are no longer gatekeeping on that table to where everybody feels welcome because can you find a more democratized product than beer? Everybody. Beer belongs to everybody, both historically, both factually. It's it's liquid. It tastes good. It helps, you know, smooth social bonds. There, there's absolutely no reason everybody should not feel like they can enjoy beer and be a part of this, the same experience. It's, I know brought so much joy and brought so much sense of community to me. And I want everybody to be able to have that. So, you know, just a quick plug to, you know, support the Pink Boots Society, support your guys' initiative, support Crafted for All. I mean, there's a lot of many faces. There's a lot of wonderful programs out there that are really looking to to force some of the work that we as an industry should have been doing this whole time. I love it, man. I love that you know Ren, too. She's like a really good friend of ours. Ren is awesome. awesome. You know, she's amazing. amazing. Yeah. Okay, I love that. That makes me very, very happy. Uh, yeah, Ren is amazing. Do you also uh, know uh, Tio and Benny at Crowns and Hops in L.A.? Uh, not, not well, but I, I know of her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Never they, had a chance to speak with her though. Okay. Yeah. They're both, uh, Tio, Tio and Benny. They, they're the two founders of Crowns of Hop. Good friends yeah. of ours as well. And, uh, uh, love them as well. The work that everyone's doing is great. I, I, I love that even like, I feel like they are more the leaders in the States and Ren is the leader here in Canada, but obviously she's traveled to the States and given talks and, and done stuff everywhere. So the fact that her work is, is getting known down there is even it's amazing. That makes me very, very happy, man. I love that. I love that shit. This is this is valuable. And I love it when people get it. I think that a lot of people in the industry do get it, but but maybe it, it still needs there's so much work to do. Yeah. So much work to do and people just need to understand how important it is because I think you really nailed it. The way you put that was was beautiful. With just enough of us, but there's so much it, it can grow and it needs to grow because we all love it. We want it to be around and we want it to be better. And to your point, I mean, there's so what what do we have to lose? The more people and the more perspectives that are involved in this, uh, to your point, that is if there's one thing we love in craft beer, it's innovation. I mean, if we're going to put up with people throwing whole fucking cheesecakes into a mash ton, like we should be excited about people being able to bring ingredients and concepts and ideas into this that may not have been thought of yet. And the chances of that happening only goes up when you bring people from diverse backgrounds. I am privileged right now to be working with a brewery in Tibet, the highest elevation brewery in the world. And the perspective that Losong is able to bring into things, uh, the ingredients, the ideas, the flavor combinations are things that literally we never would have thought of. And and it's it's because it's informed by a, a palate and a sense of food and beverage that is just different from mine and different from most of the people in the industry, but it doesn't mean that it isn't something I would enjoy the hell out of. It's just, I never would have gotten there with it. I never would have thought of it. 
Yeah. I'm working with a brewery in the UAE. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be working with a brewery in Portugal. Uh, it's amazing to see how just a little bit of difference in background and culture can inform our food and our beverage decisions. And for all of us, that means more options. That means more things to explore. And I think that most people who get into craft beer were inherently adventurous when it comes to our mm-hmm. consumption. And, you know, I, for one, get really, really excited about being able to try a beer that it has something in it that, you know, I've never had before. Not a Hostess cupcake. Stop doing that. Um, but, but if someone wants to throw like alligator pepper into a beer uh, or spice bush into a beer and I've never had that before, fuck it. I want to see what happens. I want to see what that's like. And who knows? We might have just found the next perfect compliment because if, you know, we can go look at gruits and people are throwing bog myrtle and, and yarrow into to beers. Sure as hell, we have a whole lot of stuff in our entire culinary palate across the world that the only reason it's not everyone's favorite ingredient is we haven't gotten the chance to see what it would be like yet. Well said, my man. Well said. That's it. So hopefully that paints the picture that obviously it's coming from two very passionate people about this stuff. So I love it. Um, this is fantastic. So to, to wrap up the, the first thing, I know we kind of got the, the distracted with that very important uh, tangent, but it's all about tangents here. Um, the steam theory kind of analogy on how that works like basically we kind of got the point about how you how you uh, discover the beers that you want to do, how you get them made, you choose the facilities, you do the distribution, you have your distribution center and all that stuff. The only other thing that we didn't really touch on was just how the finances work. You mentioned licensing, which sounds like, I mean, it's pretty much paints the picture, but do you mind maybe just drill down on, on what that, as far as you're able to go on just how that looks for, the, for both sides? Yeah, so... From a financial standpoint, uh, and a way to bring it back on topic, see, that was actually like <laughs> remarkable how, how well you were able to really like zero that back in. Uh, so from a financial standpoint, we pay for everything, soup to nuts. So the breweries that we work with, it, it does not cost them a dime from the production of the product all the way through to the point it gets in the back of somebody's fridge. Uh, what we do instead is we – a percentage of all the revenue that we earn off of that brand goes back to the brewery or goes back to the kombucha company or the hard coffee company, what have you. So it works the opposite. A lot of, a lot of companies that do contract brewing, I mean, it's effectively a service. They, the brewery is paying for the service. We inverted that because what that does is that puts an enormous amount of financial risk on and a financial exposure on their mm-hmm. shoulders. You know, a small brewery, by their very nature, they can't afford to roll the dice on opening up five new states and, and producing 200 barrels of beer, like basically overnight, uh, just to, to, to test the market. Hmm. We can, because we're able to crowdsource that risk a bit, because we have such a large portfolio that, you know, that risk for us is less real than it is for them. And I would much rather us be able to assume that. And if it bombs... That's on us, and and as long as we're able to brew to order and make sure that we've produced, you know, exactly the right amount of product, that that's okay. But what I don't want is to to go to a brewery and say, "Hey, we can help you out. We can really get you everywhere you want." But you're gonna have to trust us because you're gonna have to put three hundred fifty thousand dollars basically up front just to see if this works. Right. I'd much rather be able to say, "Hey." The amount you make off of this is going to grow with the amount that we make off of this, and that also means we have skin in the game. 
we don't make money unless we sell this. And us being able to promise you the world isn't going to make a damn bit of difference unless we're able to find people who are going to be as passionate about your product as we are and as passionate about your product as you are. And it also means that for them, you know, they, they, they understand that at the end of the day, we're also relying on them to build their own brand. I'm not here to take Steam Theory and make Steam Theory, you know, make Steam Theory connect with every single customer. We have a marketing arm and we, we offer a, a, a ton of help to the breweries we work with. But at the end of the day, I can't speak for the Steam Theory because the only way that the authentic voice of the folks of Steam Theory or Bold Mariner or Bay Cannon or Urban Brew Labs is going to come out is if they're the ones who are speaking. Mm. So they know that it's on them to build that brand and really focus on being able to speak their truth and be able to tell their story and create their narrative. And for us, it's just a matter of being able to help that story and their personality and the ethos of those breweries reach a much larger audience. Hmm, I love that. How can those breweries assist you? So when you work with them, say they're like you said, I don't know, these guys, uh, steam theory are from Dallas. They brewed out of Virginia. Maybe you want to move them into Georgia, which is an example you made earlier. Mm-hmm. So, how do, do they like to do taste? Like, how how would you how do you establish a new brand to a new state that isn't familiar with them? Like, is that with a series of tastings where maybe you'd have the mm-hmm. owner, the head brewer, somebody from the brewery do a little tour for a week or something? Or like, what what does that kind of look like from your end? Yeah. So, first, our in-house marketing kicks its wheels up and you know that that's just a matter of making people aware of the fact that the brand's coming you know people can't buy what they're not even aware of they can't get excited about what they're not even aware of but beyond that we have district managers in the market and you know traditionally the the beer industry in the u.s and it's also this way in canada even if the the structure of it's a little different but a salesperson working for a brewery, and I say this as somebody with a background in sales in the industry, you're not actually selling anything. What you're doing is you're effectively a lead getter for your wholesalers. Because typically, it, whether unless you're doing self-distro, which you know starts to cap out on its scale pretty quick, mm. you can't directly sell the product to the retailer. You can't directly sell the product to the consumer unless it's over the counter at your tap room. So what you are doing is effectively marketing. So we've embraced that. Our district managers, they're out there in the field. And what they're doing is they're doing a, a, two, two things first and foremost. The first thing that they're doing is interacting with consumers. And that's things like tastings. That's things uh, like festivals. It's those consumer-facing initiatives that really put our person with our product in front of a customer and says, hey, taste this. It's good as hell. I know you're going to love it. If only I can get it over the gums and uh, over the teeth and through the gums and you know, look out, tummy, here comes drunk. Uh, <laughs> the second half of what they do is supporting our wholesalers. And a lot of that is going to be, uh, a lot of that's going to be like uh, programming. So things like ride-alongs are wonderful, but but more important than that is we want them working on things like floor stacks, things like end caps, things like shelf talkers, the kind of things that when a customer is at a retail level, when they're walking through a store, and you know, we all know this, you're walking through the store and you're like, you know what the one thing I don't need is today? I don't need freaking Twinkies. I do not need any like sugary substances in my life. I'm going to come here. I'm going to go right back to the milk section and go right back. And you know what you do? You're around the corner to the milk section and right on that end cap looking you right in the eye is that smiling little Twinkie cowboy. And you know what you do? You walk out with three boxes of freaking Twinkies. 
So a huge part of their job is being able to just position the product and you know be able to provide the materials for the product. Just let people know that they're there and to help tell the story because at the end of the day, there's 8,500 breweries in the U.S. You add Canada in there, you got 10,000 breweries just in those two Anglophone markets that you know are, are competing for shelf space. Mm-hmm. That's an unbelievable amount of noise for a consumer because at that point, they're facing the, the tyranny of choice. They have no way of cutting through the noise and you have to be able to just grab their attention uh, because we are in a t- in attention economy and say, hey, you have a thousand choices here. They're all good choices. They're all wonderful. A lot of them are making fantastic beer. But look at this one because what you're really looking for in this example, you know, you're looking for a hazy IPA that you can drink all day. That's got a, you know, you might not be super into steampunk, but what you do like is something with a Bob's burgers references, which they have on the side of the can here, Mm. you know, come here, take a look at this out of the 250 breweries that are on the shelf at your local grocery store. Try this. So, you know, so much of, of just being able to connect with consumers is literally just being able to get them to stop long enough to pay attention to you. Because mm. at the end of the day, we all buy based on labels. We all buy based on what catches our attention. And this is something I try to drive home to the brands, something I try to drive home to, to people when I talk about it is, you know, you and I are, are pretty into this beer thing, kind of invested into this beer Still thing. Little. Yeah, it's a wee bit. But you know what we do? We still buy in freaking labels. You know why? Because I don't even have time to research 250 freaking breweries on the shelf at my local Kroger or my local grocery store. At the end of the day, I'm going to have to eventually get to the point where I'm like, well, I'm feeling this style. I still have 30 options to choose from. But this one has a bunny on it. My daughter loves bunnies, so it's going to make it so she's going to pull this beer out of the fridge and hand it to me at the end of the day. So that's the one I'm taking. And that's okay. You just have to find a way to stand out amongst that noise because we are at the point now where the problem isn't having options for customers. The problem is being able to help direct them towards the best options and the ones that you know are going to be able to satisfy whatever need they have. No, that, that's exactly it. And, and even when you put it like that, like, and I'm just picturing the, the BS like, and look, to be fair, Canada is not like the state. You guys, I was funny enough, I was talking to my girlfriend about this today about the uh, the 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 um the choice what's it called like pa- getting being paralyzed by choice yep decision paralysis thank you that's the word I'm looking for and it's probably a pretty real thing in craft beer now I imagine then based on what you were saying I'm probably spending more time based on the nature of what I do online and Instagram and and so forth getting more familiar with what's going on more so in my home markets beforehand. I was traveling a lot, so I would study if I'm going somewhere new. When I went to Virginia, I didn't know jack shit about Virginia except for the veil. So I'm like, all right. I asked a whole bunch of trusted people because I now, once again, through Instagram, I knew all these people. I'm like, yo, where do I need to go? And I got two or three people to give me lists, and I saw the ones where they said the same thing, and I looked them up. I'm like, boom, there you go. Reach out to them, do a podcast, meet them for a vlog, whatever it is. And that's how I you know, discover something new. So... Not everyone has that time. The average person, the average beer drinker is casually into it. They like beer. They want to support local, but then they're faced with those incredible, you know, like cold shelves that you guys have over there that are just so wonderful and uh, don't know what to do. And it's it's kind of crazy. So, yeah, it, all of those solutions, whether it's, you know, 
their marketing, whether it's email marketing, uh, some sort of social thing or ads or, or tastings or whatever it might be to sort of get that through, that's, that seems like it's, it's going to be a pretty key element to moving into a new market for a brand. Well, and it's, it's something I think that we as an industry, we do a terrible job of remembering is, you know, we got a lot of people who like craft beer and drink craft beer, but for most of them, they're just not that into craft beer. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. They might be into anything. They might be super into music. They might be super into movies. They might be super into comic books, what have you. They might be super into, I don't know, needlepoint. But at the end of the day, they still enjoy craft beer and still might even be their drink of choice. It's just for them, they don't put obsessive thought into it. And that, that's okay. But you know what they are? 95% of the freaking consumers. So we have to remember that, you know, there is a place and a time where you can market exclusively to super users like you and I. And that's one of the things like the veil does really well. You know, they aim for this tiny little subset of consumers, but they're the kind who will really spend money and really go out of their way. Most people aren't like that and that's okay. And what we do, I'm not trying to capture that 1% of consumers and it's because it's been done and it can be done and you can do that and stay tiny. What I'm trying to do is expose the other 99% of consumers to the fact that just because you don't want to spend an inordinate amount of time pouring over untapped data or pouring over hop culture articles doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to get the best beer possible. Hmm. So if you can look for a CBV logo and you can see that, you know, we've talked to these folks and we've worked with these folks personally, we've, we've, tasted their beer we've sat down with them and we've really put the effort into making sure that you know what's getting out there is fantastic quality if nothing else you know that you're you're not risking your dollars as much as you might be with you know bob's burgundy brewing company right up the street just trying to figure out whether or not they're actually worth any salt 100 percent, and that is a fantastic segue into i wanted to actually talk about the Community Brewing Ventures. I almost said, see, I have a song called CVB, like Severin Bon <laughs> in French. So I almost said that. So I want to say it in full. But you guys, um, your portfolio. I'd love to talk about, like, about yeah. who you have in the portfolio. I know I checked out the website, but I'd like to, you know, even if we're going to talk about just, doesn't have to be in depth about everyone, but it'd be cool to, to run through where they're from and what, what they do best and, and uh, that type of stuff. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, so, so I guess I can just start with D9 Brewing Company. Uh, they're originally from Cornelius, North Carolina. It's in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. It's as close to a headquarters as we have. Uh, D9 has won multiple GABF medals in the sour category. Their uh, Sistema series has done really well for them. But to, to this day, uh, our sours in that category are definitely definitely our strong suit. So Sistema? Uh, uh, Sistema, Sistema Nature was a whole series of rotating uh, beers using a variety of like Gruet style adjuncts, just uh, oh, cool. with a wild sour base. And you know, to this day, we still have uh, two two primary wild series that use a wild base, um, which has been held to scale up uh, okay. because you can't exactly fake microbes uh, when they've been living wild for seven years. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Whiskers on Kitten, which is our base uh, sour blonde and Carnival, and we also have Brewer's Day Off, which is a uh, cantaloupe and melon Berliner Weiss, or a uh, cucumber and melon Berliner Weiss that has uh, been crushing it for us. Uh, all using that same wild base. Cool labels too. Yeah, they do. Don't 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 give them credit for that. I'll have to no. hear it. 
That's here, okay. here from Florida. They're fine. <laughs> So we also work with uh, Updog Kombucha is, is the first in our alternative beverage uh, categories. They are originally based out of Winston-Salem. But uh, Olivia Wolf and Lauren Miller were a couple of badasses who are running a, a fast-growing kombucha company that was really doing some fantastic stuff, really turned me on to a category of beverages that I wasn't a huge fan of before. Right. And you know, Lauren, for, for, for a few uh, personal reasons, was having to get out of the industry, and they really just wanted to find a place that could be good stewards of the brand and really keep it growing, not let it just stagnate and die. And so we were proud to work with them, and we were actually able to bring Olivia in full-time working with us in a, in a bit of a unique situation. So they're entirely in-house for us as well, turning out fantastic kombucha awesome. um, and really pushing that forward as well. Uh, we also work with Steam Theory, who we've been talking about pretty much the whole day. They're out of Dallas, Texas. Uh, Brew Pub, first and foremost, turning out some fantastic food, a really fantastic neighborhood spot, but just really great beer, really good people, really strong theming. And uh, Texas is here in the States is this weird little bizarre world. The way their alcohol regulations work, it is very, very mm. difficult to get Texas beer out of Texas and very, mm. very difficult to get outside breweries into texas hmm. so you know a lot of people outside of texas hadn't got a chance to try them but they've been extremely well received we've been pretty happy to work with them uh we also have bay cannon brewing uh out of tampa florida so yeah. they are a, a very florida themed brewery hibiscus on every can and really just trying to transport people a little to that florida mindset no matter where they might happen to be uh, Matthew Jouer is an awesome, awesome guy. Uh, him and Joe have been crushing it down there. They were one of the ones that opened up basically right before COVID wound up wiping out just about everything. But they had a strong sense of who they were. They were the first brewery in the West Tampa area in ages and really just holding it down for a historic neighborhood and trying to really make things happen down there. Good beer, too. Uh, Bold Mariner Brewing Company, veteran-owned and operated out of Norfolk, Virginia, uh, run by Michael Stacks, uh, former Navy SEAL. Uh, I could kill me for saying former. There's no such thing as a former Navy SEAL. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but they uh, they do everything from lagers to IPAs to sours and had, haven't had a bad beer from those folks yet. In that whole area, if, if anyone's unfamiliar with like the U.S. Navy and kind of kind of the base setup, Norfolk is really the centerpiece of the U.S. Navy when it comes oh, yeah. to domestic places. And, uh, I mean, those guys really have created a brand that's going to – I'm a Navy brat myself. My brother was in the Air Force. My sister and her husband are both in the Coast Guard. Both my granddads were military. Uh, anywhere you're going to find servicemen and women, uh, that that's definitely the kind of brewery that's going to speak to them because, you know, a portion of all the proceeds of their Vienna Lager go to helping support retired SEALs. It, it's – it's a company that really lives and dies by their own ideals. Um, what else we work with urban brew labs out of Chicago. They're right there on malt row, which is basically that long stretch of some of the best uh, breweries in the uh, city. A lot of people don't realize Chicago has more uh, breweries than I think any other city on the planet right now. Really? Uh, yeah. And so they started as a bottle shop, James Moriarty, who works there. He's from the Boston area originally. So him and my Boston wife get along. Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, but he's just turning out like great stuff. He's been in the industry for a long time, working with breweries all over the country and just bringing all of that experience home with him to Chicago. Uh, also working with uh, Unknown Brewing Company. So they're a bit of another unique case. They're one that uh, was going to be shutting down in the Charlotte market. They're actually one of the earliest breweries in Charlotte, one of the largest breweries in Charlotte. And the owner mm -hmm. 
he was actually one of the old school guys from Rogue back in the days when they were still doing the pink bottles and doing some crazy stuff with like yeast from beards oh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that was Brad. <laughs> so uh, he he wanted to kind of kind of retire, and he you know wanted to kind of be able to just hang up some of the hardships that go with running a brand. And we were able to talk to him and work out with him that you know, do you want to still make beer? Yes. Do you still want to create new awesome stuff? Yes. Do you still want to work with the brand? Yes. What do you not want to do? You don't want to book freaking yoga. You don't want to run a tap room. You don't want to have to deal with distribution. So we were able to take all of that for him and keep that brand going, even when he thought he was going to have to shut it down just to be able to finally kind of kind of have some peace and family time. Um, which has been awesome to work with. That's great. Aside from that, a couple that haven't hit the market yet, kind of the biggest one that we've already announced is uh, Side Hustle Brews, which is out of the United Arab Emirates. So they are the largest brewery in the UAE, and they are building a destination brewery outside of Pittsburgh here in the U.S. And we are going to be working with them to help really run their uh, American arm, uh, which has been an absolute treat. Uh, to have folks who are that visionary and really trying to wedge open a craft beer market in an area that doesn't even really have an alcohol market. Yeah. It's been really, really cool and a really, really unique experience. That's dope. That's the portfolio today? That is the portfolio that I can talk about outside of NDA to date. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, I mean, obviously you're always, uh, I mean, that's very impressive. That's a solid, uh, you know, eight, nine, maybe. Yeah, that was uh, eight, and, and keep in mind that that's only been hitting since June. So. Okay, so it's been pretty. Uh, how long have you guys been around, by the way? Since so June? we were in court. Yeah, we were incorporated uh, February of last year, and okay. uh, yeah, first brands D nine had obviously already been in the market and basically running through this model, uh, but the first brands aside from D nine started hitting in June, and it's been just a, an absolute tear since then, and. It's been it's been not only working, but it has been working above and beyond what we ever could have expected. So we are uh, done with new brands for the rest of the year, and that was by intention. But keep an eye out once beer season kicks back up uh, around St. Patty's Day. We've already got things planned out through Q2 next year. So it's it's happening and happening quick. That's awesome, man. I mean, like that's a really, uh, really wide, varied – interesting genuinely interesting portfolio i didn't realize it was that short i guess i should have asked that in the beginning about the timeline i usually do so my bad on that but that's well impressive. for me it's been like a year and a, it was like a year and a half just getting to june so it's <laughs> <laughs> hey man made it and i mean that that's super impressive and uh i mean i imagine there will there's probably are they there's going to be more brands slowly over time i mean you've obviously got these guys now it's been what's that four months since june so i mean give you guys some time god damn it, it, it yeah say, saying there will be more brands might be the understatement of the year i okay. i can tell you we are and i can actually look this up you guys are hearing it live oh shit oh shit oh uh, you yeah yeah that's we have I wish i had a drum roll sound yeah right like <laughs> We have about 25 breweries that you're probably going to be hearing from us about within the next uh, next year. Jeez. Ad- yeah. In addition to what we have already. Okay. I mean, that is uh, that's pretty insane, but 
in an amazing way. Uh, yeah, to say the least. Uh, so now you understand why it was a year and a half of just building the back end. And we, we've talked about this is the fact that the we'll know we have done our job right when five years from now, everybody will be saying, look at this thing. It came, came out of nowhere, absolutely overnight. It just happened. And it's like, you guys mm. have no idea the sheer amount of time and energy it's gone even just to making sure that this thing, what it's a logistical nightmare. It yes. is an organizational nightmare and that's by design. And that's basically our business model is to be able to untangle that. But mm. there's an enormous amount of foundation that goes into any sort of business just to be able to, to prove its base assumptions. And our base assumptions are proved now. Now it's just a matter of us really taking this thing to the point where, you know, hopefully a year from now, uh, interviews like this where people are saying, what is CBV will seem pretty trite and pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty introductory. Instead, the conversation will be, what are they doing next? I love that. Uh, Even just with that, please, like, I think this would be fun to, like, you know, catch up every six to 12 months and just be like, all right, what the fuck are you guys doing now, you crazy bastards? Like, what, how many <laughs> how many breweries do you work? I, I think it's such, such a dope idea, man. And obviously, you've got that many breweries ready to sign on on something that, I mean, you've got a solid base of, um, I don't want to call them test, uh, you know, but you're able to prove, what's it called? Why am I having a blank? When you prove the um, proof of concept, like the the... Obviously, it's working, even if it's only been four months, but obviously that year and a half set all these things in motion. And then with these, this first sort of like school of breweries, uh, you're able to prove that concept. And the idea is that you can just keep scaling almost indefinitely, really. As long as the product keeps selling, um, the, the scaling hopefully should be, you'd be able to continue working with you know, breweries and breweries that, that fit with your ethos and you guys at the internal team believe in that in, in the brewery and the company and click with the founders and then like all right i can make this work in the portfolio type of thing or is there a finite limit to it there's a finite limit but i know exactly where it is because i spent a week and a half working on that exact question and i can tell you it's it's way further out than people think it is the obvious question everybody gets is where do you start competing against yourself? Hmm. Five breweries, seven breweries. I can tell you it is drastically more than that. Um, and there's a lot of work that's gone into proving that exact point because it, it is a hmm. very valid question, but hmm. you know, f- for us at the end of the day, we're, we're not a beverage company that that's not what we can and should be because there are beverage companies and we have to have beverage companies, but working with them is our entire bread and butter. But what we are is we're a platform. We are a way of accessing the market and a way of accessing capacity. And it's not about us competing with anybody. It's about us being able to provide an avenue that makes all of this run smoother for all of us. Mm. And we're able to basically, you know, take that, that cream off the top of all of that while watching this industry continue to succeed. Because if we don't, the efficiencies aren't there. It's all going to collapse under its own weight. So, mm. you know, we, we are able to scale to the point where we're able to help more and more breweries and we're able to help the breweries who ever would have been in grocery and ever would have been in chain and ever would have been in Total Wine or Green Co. or what have you and uh, able to keep helping them grow and keep helping them develop. Because, you know, at the end of the day, 
when you have 8,500 breweries in the U.S., I can tell you that the number we can support is under 8,500. I can also tell you it's larger than most people imagine, and that's okay because at the end of the day, it's not about us pushing anybody out of anywhere. It's about us helping them do this better and more sustainably so that they can deploy their cash and they can focus their attention and their efforts on areas that'll actually make them money mm-hmm. instead of being what most packaging is for most breweries, which is glorified advertising because they're eating it on just trying to get it to market. Mm. No, I love that. And I guess as well, the, the way the nature, the sheer nature of craft beer consumption is variety. So like it won't cannibalize itself by the nature of what craft beer is. Like there would probably be a point where it does. And I imagine that's what you were referring to that you ran that, you ran those numbers and you figured that out. But you know, if you're able to, because you have control over the portfolio, you have control over which styles from each brewery that you take and you take the best from each one. And the idea is that you're able to one by one build those out so you've got this beautifully well-rounded portfolio with just the right number of pills and just the right number i mean obviously you said you have 50 percent hazy ipa so probably not a good example but just the right number of everything that fits in just nice and then maybe this one you could probably swap one out like you know what let's cut that one we'll bring this one in you know there's so many things that you can do there it's uh and obviously that would change per market and it's a fascinating kind of like constant equation that you're always trying to like figure out well, and what we're tra- and holy shit, a lot of work's gone into building that site out too. But yeah, you know what it allows us to do is there's a lot of weight. Like competition can be a wonderful thing, and you have to have competition to really keep an industry growing and developing. But if we can lose some of the waste that comes in with people just trying to figure out who's the best damn pilsner, how about we just get to the point where we can say we don't need any more pilsners? And make people realize, yeah, maybe we're maybe instead of us focusing on our effort and trying to prove our pilsner is the best, we crush it with our Vienna lager. We mm. crush it with our Schwartz beer. We, I mean, and to anybody who thinks this is just a way of getting more hazies to the market, I mean, we carry a Schwartz beer right now, which I am very glad about because I absolutely adore that style. One of the best. It's not about us running mm. nothing but the highest selling styles because at the end of the day, like I said before. The goal is to make it so that whatever any customer, no matter who they are, wants, we have something in there for them. And part of that is about rationalizing and indexing the industry to make sure that we're able to, to really service every need without wasting our time going in circles around each other trying to figure out who gets to fill that. And, you know, for us, that's the important thing is just really being able to get to the core of of what do consumers want? Because to your point, they do want diversity. They want product diversity. It's why ABI, you're never, and not just ABI, but, you know, Molson Coors, Canarchy, Artisanal Brewing Ventures, who have you, they'll never be able to adequately satisfy what consumers want with their own in-house portfolios because you can't acquire breweries fast enough to be able and manage all those companies as distinct business units to be able to satisfy what a customer really wants, which isn't 10 breweries. They want a hundred breweries. So how do you find a way to deliver them all that choice, but in a way that still makes sense financially and still is able to direct them towards quality products every single time? Mm. That that's the central question that we have to answer. Right. And you're uniquely positioned to be able to do so, uh, with, based on oh, this entire. We found a, 
we have found a whole lot of problems that this was not originally intended to fix that boy does it. Um, and, and that'll be a conversation for you and me to revisit sometime next year. But there are already some things that we have started to realize that this model wasn't intended to solve, mm -hmm. that it just makes way too much sense not to, to use it to solve. Hmm. I love that. I mean, isn't that like the beauty of this whole thing where like you, you go in there with one thing and you come out, you're like, oh shit, like not only can I fix this, but I can fix this, this, and this too. Viagra was originally intended to solve blood pressure problems, and now look at it. Like oh, it's, <laughs> that's the example right there. That's the example right there. Community We're brewing the ventures. Blue pill of the beer industry. <laughs> Is that the episode name? Uh, please, please, God, no. <laughs> no? Okay. All right. Maybe we won't do that. But maybe it's a little clip. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'll take that. I'll okay. Take that. We'll do that It one. is called beer and other shit. It's in line. It's, you know, I mean, we're not like lowbrow or anything. You know, we have serious conversations, but you know, the episode named the clickbait. Really? You want to be like, <laughs> little blue pill of beer industry? What the fuck is this about? I have to listen to that. I need to know what's going on. Um, speaking of little blue pill, it's a terrible segue. Do you want to do the uh, pumpkin? Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and dive in. I'll, uh, just in the interest, we're looking at the, the the time there. Like I'm always down to finish uh, finish afterwards. Babe, do you mind grabbing the pumpkin beer and the glass from the finger? Tell us about this bad boy. We're we're finished. We're going going large or going home. Yeah. So this is. Oh man, I got to readjust on this one. Good lord. Uh, so this is head of the horseman. This is from D9. So this is from the brewery oh, that all of this originally spun out of. Uh, this is a 10% uh, Imperial Pumpkin Oof. Ale. So stateside pumpkin beer, as much as people like to pretend they don't like it, it is still as popular as ever. Yep. And for us, this is our largest seasonal the entire year. Uh, wow. We, we pre-sell this to the point where we have had to increase our batch size a couple of times to even just get it out there. Uh, and... On, honestly, I, I'll freely acknowledge, like, I am Ugg boots and leggings away from being the most basic bitch in every room I walk into. I absolutely love pumpkin spice it's everything. It's the best. I, I love it. But, Dude, like, I am so basic. Our, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I am Becky. No, 100%. Like, I, I, I drink PSLs to an obnoxious amount. I have pumpkin spice <laughs> ginger snaps in my freaking pantry right That's now. That's what the I fuck is up. That's coffee creamer. I have a Chemex <laughs> that I do pour over fancy ass Sumatran coffee, and I pour coffee creamer that's pumpkin spice into it. So you know, judge away. No judgment but, uh, here, brother. I'm right there with you. Yeah, so so I love it. This is uh, made with pumpkin. It's also got a uh, turbinado sugar, which helps really uh, really just add some depth of flavor. Anybody who's had jaggery or tur turbinado or any of those just knows that like it, it's not just brown sugar. It's got a whole lot more complexity to it yeah. nutmeg allspice cinnamon um everything you'd expect out of just a, a fantastic pumpkin beer with a base that is big but that isn't so big that it's going to knock you the hell out the hell out it is surprisingly good at hiding just how much is going on yeah man at 10 percent, jesus lord um that is a beautiful thing and it's a uh so the traditional pumpkin ale with um, what is it? I imagine it's got the, the the pumpkin spices all up in there from even just whiffing the the, the glasses on pouring it there. What do we? Yeah, what it's we got all with? the pumpkin spices in there. Um, I would say it's about as it's a pretty traditional pumpkin beer plus about three percent alcohol, four percent alcohol compared to what the uh, traditional Buffalo Bill style pumpkin spice ale would be. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's the time of year where if you're gonna go big, now's the time to do it. I mean, you're eating a whole 22 pound turkey with three people. Don't lie, don't lie. That's that's not all for sandwiches after the holiday. Here in the states, we we go hard or we go home around Thanksgiving, and you know if we're able to extend pumpkin season all the way back to June, we're gonna do it. Oh man, if only we could. It's the greatest. We actually just had our Canadian Thanksgiving on Sunday, just passed, and. Uh, we didn't do anything super crazy. I and mean, we're in Australia. We don't actually have Thanksgiving. I know about it from the movies, but I actually don't know anything much about it. And here it's not super – like it's a thing, but it's not like a thing like it is there. Yeah. But I just love this time of year because we don't have pumpkin stuff in Australia. So I came here like just fucking amped, not biased, just excited genuinely for all things pumpkin. And obviously Starbucks is hot garbage, but you can get a good third wave coffee. I'm huge on coffee too. It sounds like you are. Um, mm-hmm. and you get great third wave pumpkin stuff and pumpkin pie like you said the creamer even though that's kind of like out of scope of third wave uh, you can make some exceptions for things like that you know? my friend <laughs> the one thing I miss about the border being closed is Trader Joe's we used to go to Vermont all the time I was on oh, yeah. FaceTime with my boy in uh, San Diego he's originally from Toronto but he moved out there and I was like oh man I'm, we buy all our spices and stuff from there we used to bring a cooler and fill it up with like all the frozen stuff because it's only two hours drive so we just actually go to the supermarket shop in there and he was Is going Burlington to or? Burlington yeah yeah the one on yeah. Dulce Street there so beautiful, beautiful city man yeah hell yeah it's the fucking best bro I miss it so much but my boy was going through TJ's and we were like alright cool get us our spices that we want like you know all the different things we just like the tj stuff and i was like all right we're going through just scoping all the pumpkin spice stuff like, what could you get me all they have pumpkin spice little those little like sticks baton stick things that you just chew to like get them so you can stir the coffee with them and pumpkin spice like tostitos something like that like just it was out of control and i, I miss it terribly so, so i appreciate this so there's a lot of very very legitimate reasons and thank god this is a canadian audience a, very, a lot of very very legitimate reasons to to pick on america pretty much at all times <laughs> but if there is one thing that we do and that we do in my opinion well there is no such thing as not enough like like if if we can take it to a le- like very like this is spinal tap if we can take it to 11 why the hell go to 10 and when it comes to the pumpkin point. spice, yeah, we will put it in literally everything. everything. Yeah, oh. we have pumpkin spice margarine sitting on the freaking shelves here at the grocery stores. It's outrageous. Oof. That is amazing. Pumpkin spice margarine? Oh, my gosh. I would rock that in a Oh, second. it's everything. Literally. I have pumpkin spice cider sitting in my fridge. Not even hard cider. It's just, oh, just normal no. apple cider. They're like, you know what? Fuck it. Throw pumpkin spice into it. And oh. I, I, I love that attitude because if it's good, why not throw it into things that doesn't belong in at all? Because you know Ooh, who's going to buy it? This dumbass. <laughs> and this dumbass too, bro. I'm really happy. I feel like we have a lot in common with all this because I feel like I get a lot of shit from my homies who uh, – don't necessarily appreciate the basicness of the infinity scarf and Ugg boots, which are big in my country. Um, for, for dudes, I had my old landlord here thought I was gay when I first moved here because I was wearing Ugg boots. And like, no, bro, it's it's an Aussie thing. You know, I think we invented them. <laughs> it's just what we do. Like, dudes don't normally wear them, but you know, it's, it's, it's a, we're about that life. I feel like I was I was built for this. I was made for this, and I'm with you. How much did Crocodile Dundee screw up people's perceptions of your whole country? Every time I come over here, people keep bringing it up. I'm like, why do you talk? No one in Australia talks about it. Why are you talking about it? It's very funny. And then people, one dude. That's one not time, a knife. <laughs> That's a knife. I couldn't tell you how many times people said that or the shrimp on the barbie line. Like, all right, bro. Okay. One time when I first, first visited here, I lived in Toronto in 2004 before I moved back. And that's how I decided I wanted to live here for good. And I was in Vegas. We lived there and I was doing like a trip around the States and then 
you know, doing the one year after university thing. And uh, I was taking a piss at like a casino or something. Some dude said, you know, you talk, you drunk. Yeah, hey, something like that. He's like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, straight. He's like, do you know Steve Irwin? I'm like, yeah, he's my uncle. <laughs> he's like, what? I'm like, no, he's not my uncle. <laughs> you know, people uh, people are excited about very interesting things. You don't realize how your country is perceived internationally until you stay there for an extended period of time. You're like, oh, that's what you really think? Like, but that's what people are showing, and it's 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 pretty funny. I was fortunate enough to live in Spain for three years and got an opportunity to see exactly what people in Europe think about America. And boy, that's a sobering experience. <laughs> how was how was that? Not, not, oh, what me, wonderful experience as a whole, but boy, you, you come back feeling way less full of yourself as a nation. Uh, <laughs> it's, but no, I, I, I completely agree. Like, and I think that's important for perspective for anybody. And I tell yeah. this to everyone, just get the hell out of your hometown because you gain so much perspective just being in another place and just being able to speak with people who didn't don't have the same baggage as you do. Everybody everywhere has their own baggage and bullshit, but yeah. you know, get out of where you're from and that'll ha- let you contextualize your own experience so much more. I couldn't agree more. It's um it's, it helps you kind of like grow up, uh, become more worldly, understand different cultures, the way different people think. And it, it actually helps you, like, exactly what you just said, it helps you see how you are perceived by the rest of the world. And whilst every single country, like not, it's not, I feel like America does sometimes get unfairly picked on uh, just because. Uh, it gets picked on unfairly as subjective. Okay, good point. I've got a lot of American friends and stuff after being here so long uh, and like uh, I'm much more understanding of it all when I was just in Australia. I was always obsessed with the States. And always, you guys had the coolest shit. Always, all the things I was into, basketball and, and hip-hop music and, and all of this stuff was not really represented heavily from where I'm from. So to get the things that I uh, grew up enjoying was difficult, it was expensive, it was delayed heavily. Um, you know, we got movies three months after they came out. Like if I wanted to buy most of the albums, I had to pay $40, $50 for a CD that you guys got here for maybe 12 bucks because they were imports because they didn't get released locally. Things like that. So it was like really difficult. So, so being here, you can sort of understand it, but it's interesting seeing what everyone thinks of Australia. And everyone just thought of this big exotic place. I mean, it's, it's exactly the same as here, man. It's no different. It's like parts of it may be exotic, but that's such small things. The real life happens in these like four cities. Like it's really not much else going well, that was on. About, what, what part of Australia are you from? Melbourne. So south. Oh, yeah. Like, and you're even insulated from some of it. Good luck trying to explain from to somebody you're from Perth. I got a yeah. friend from Perth, and they're like, "What?" The? They're like, "Oh yeah, you're from Sydney? Nope, Melbourne? No. Nope. That's nope. all I got. That's the only so, places I know in Australia. There we go. Yeah, dead ass. And, and people good always say you're Sydney. From Darwin. Good fucking oh, luck. Like it's <laughs> over. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine being being from those places. People are like always say, "Oh, he's from Sydney." I'm like, no. And it's interesting because you can pick it now. If I meet an Aussie, I can pick it. They're always fucking from Sydney. They've got an accent. They're usually pretentious pricks. Shouts to Sydney. I do love the city, but they don't, they don't have the best exports all the time. But it's really interesting just to see sort of where, uh, you know, how people see the place and stuff. And, and you know, and, and something like craft beer actually has, has given, I feel like I've discovered more places because of craft beer because I have, I'm a city kid um, and always been quite biased towards that. And I've, I've traveled to places I would never have even thought to have gone prior because of beer and discovered a whole world of people, um, regions, like food, 
all because of something as, as cool as craft beer, which is it's been a blessing to be honest. And I love that because like I, I try to explain to people, you know, having been in this as long as I have been in this, what's in the glass, what's in the can, like that that's important. I love it. That that's what keeps me in it. But I've learned more about macroeconomics from just being in freaking beer than I ever would have otherwise. Like uh, things, things I never thought that I would learn about. And I've learned just by virtue of having to be involved in this industry. But the one thing I love the most is no matter where you go in the world, especially these days, now you have nascent craft beer cultures developing everywhere yeah. is that, you know, example I use sometimes is uh, about, Four years ago, I went to uh, Denver, Colorado for GABF, and on my way back, my wife and I stopped at uh, a brewery in Aurora, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Never been there, never met anybody, just found it on Google Maps. It was on the way to the airport. Stopped in there, and by the time that we were done, we were you know, drunk on the grain bags with the assistant brewer in, in the back of the brew house. And the only thing that we needed to have in common, no matter what else, no matter where we're from, no matter what our life experiences is, we know we have a starting point. The starting point is beer. And at the very least, we have one thing in common. And, you know, if you have one thing in common, it's amazing how easy it is to get along with just about anybody. Um, so, I mean, it's one of the reasons why people in the food world, it doesn't matter if you're, you're a chef who specializes in Mexican food or French food or, you know, sushi. At the end of the day, you all have that love of food, which allows you to interact and really allows chefs anywhere to find common ground. It's the same thing in beer. If you have nothing else, you have beer. And from there, you can find the the common humanity that allows you to really get along with just about anybody. I love that about it. Man, that's great. That's really well said. That's exactly what I found, too. It gives you that basis, and then you end up finding many other commonalities because people from all different walks of life I mean, beer is a little bit of a monoculture, as we were talking about earlier, but it's not that. You know, even within the scope of maybe the limited ethnicity side of it, is, you know, people are very different from different places, different perspectives. But I always, always, I mean, obviously I do this podcast, we're doing it for six years, and we end up sitting here for anywhere between an hour and five hours with people. And when you spend that much time with individuals, you really get their stories and you get a real feel for somebody, right? And, and it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to get to talk to someone for that long because you really build like a, a level of trust and, and a kind of a relationship. Sometimes you become friends and you keep talking and stuff. And the stories behind the people in beer are, are fascinating. People have so many amazing stories about why they got into it, why they put all of everything on the line. It's not cheap. Like, you know, this shit is expensive. Like milk and, you know, seven figures, sometimes more. And when you get those stories and really get that humanity and what it means to them and what they've given up to do it, it's, I don't know, it's just really genuinely cool. And I think maybe people don't really get to always see how cool that can be and how sort of like just fascinating it is and how many individuals that it makes up and just, and we're, we're still relatively young. So imagine as that grows and the, we were talking earlier, the breadth of the, the individuals involved and the stories get more varied and stuff. Like if it's fascinating now, imagine when, when it looks different. It's, you know, it's a very cool industry. Well, I mean, look, look at this podcast right now. Like I'm, I'm a kid from Indiana who's living in South Carolina on a podcast with an Aussie who's living in Quebec. 
like just two weeks ago on one day, just one day. It was it was Wednesday two weeks ago, and I, and I'm gonna remember this day for a long time. And one day I was on the phone with people because of the craft beer industry in Canada, in Portugal, in Brazil, in the Netherlands, in the UAE, and in the U.S. all on the same day. That's crazy. That's wild. And again, if we have nothing else in common, if there's no other common ground, at the very least, we know that we all like a good IPA. And that is powerful because so much of human interaction is just finding that one, that one thread. And if you can pull that one thread, it's amazing how much of the rest is just we all want the same shit. We all want to eat well, drink well, live well, and be able to you know, see our families do well. It's not that complicated. And if we can just find a way to really open this up and to your point, like just keep expanding it. We went from craft beer really being an American phenomenon to an American and a UK phenomenon to an American, UK and Canadian phenomenon to now being all over the world. Uh, I have a friend who she is from the Ukraine. She lives in Switzerland and her primary job is translating beer books into Ukrainian while she travels the world doing beer judging. I have friends in Norway who, like Lars Marius Golschel, all he does is travel around and study, you know, kvike yeast and farmhouse brewing techniques in Norway. And he's somebody who I can interact with because if we have no other common ground, we have beer. I have friends who, the first brewery to ever start in Rwanda just opened up recently, Kwanzaa Brewery. Yes. And yeah, being able to interact with them and see that happen and being able to talk to the folks at the African Beer Cup and be in the, the running for, for being a judge next year. It's it's an amazing industry filled with amazing people. And we just have to get out of our own way and realize that all the things that make it amazing now, it's not about compromising those to keep this thing opening up further and further. It's about accelerating and really amplifying the things that we already love about it. And, and that's only going to become more and more so as, as we continue to bring more people into it. I love it, man. I couldn't have summed it up better. I feel like on that note is a perfect way to, to wrap it up. That was, that was perfection. I want to take the thumbnail for the YouTube video. So I'm going to take a screenshot. Do you want to hold up uh, yep. some of the cans there so we can, we can give them a little cheese grin? Yes. Let me get, the, let me get this pillow out from behind me so there it doesn't look like I've been lounging the whole day. Hey, you've been working. You've been working. Here we go. This way. Oh, where do we? What do we go? What do we go? There we go. Oh, that is stunning, gorgeous, Aaron. This was a, uh, a genuinely insightful, uh, really enjoyable conversation, man. Like, I really appreciate everything you guys are doing. I'm very glad we connected. Um, I feel like you guys have a extraordinarily bright future, and what you're doing for for beer and for breweries is is a wonderful thing. Um, very, very good. I, I'm excited for people to hear this and, and learn more about what you guys are doing. And I'm extra excited to keep in touch now uh, over the coming uh, years and months. You know, what it just as as the time goes, I'm here. Hear me, um, and we'll uh, we'll catch back up and see how how fast this this train is flying. You know, it's uh, it's a beautiful thing. Definitely see. Appreciate you having me on. Appreciate all your listeners at home. If you guys want to check us out, please go online at https. Uh, 
colon slash slash. Got to include the S. The guy who started the company is a tech guy. He's like real specific about that. <laughs> but it's uh, www.communitybrewingventures.com. Please check out any of our brands at their associated websites as well. Uh, support them and not only the brands that work with us, but support your local breweries, support your favorite breweries, and, and really just keep this whole craft beer movement growing because, you know, from a selfish perspective, we're going to keep growing alongside craft beer. But more than that, you know, life is way too short not to eat and drink well. And, you know, now I got a damn good reason to finally get up to Montreal because I've never been and that is long overdue. Yes, uh, you will. Uh, you will love it. It's, uh, it's a whole new world up here now. I feel like in the last couple of years, it's become the best place in Canada, in my humble opinion. I did not always. Somebody think in Vancouver just shat themselves. Yeah, Vancouver is. Oh Vancouver and Ontario are just. It's all kind of like neck and neck, but I feel like here we have everything in a way that Vancouver and I'll say BC and Ontario have almost everything. That was what. And beforehand, <laughs> I would. Dude, I lived in Montreal. I've been in Canada for 11 years. I've been to Montreal for nine years. I shout on this place every opportunity I could. I'm like, guys, we need hazy IPAs. Can someone fucking do a hazy IPA? No one would do them here. Nobody for years. And now we make some of the best in the country. So I'm very proud of Quebec. I think you would uh, you would love it. Um, it's a beautiful thing. So, yes, guys, please make sure to check out communitybrewingventures.com. You guys aren't on social at all, eh? Uh, we are. If you go uh, at Brew Accelerator, and that'd be the easiest way to find us on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, you're just going to find our various tap rooms, but we do have five tap rooms as well. So if you find yourself in North Carolina or Florida, please hit us up. Uh, we got CBB Brewery and Tap Room, 3D9 locations, and the Bay Cannon Tap Room, which we uh, work with them to manage. So please check us out. I love it. Amazing. Stick around. I'm going to wrap this up, and then we'll just say. Goodbyes on the uh, on the call off air. But everybody, thank you so much for watching and listening. If you enjoyed the episode, smash the thumbs up, hit subscribe below, hit the notification bell so you know when the new new drops. Follow us on social media at Beerless Podcast. Check out the long form audio. We are back every Wednesday at eight pm. We go. We premiere these. These are not live anymore, and uh, we have uh, you know amazing conversations like this with Aaron this evening, guys. Is uh, you know we're keeping it running. Aaron's going to be back. Guys, thank you so much for that. We will see you in the next episode. Get it in ya.